just a good old boy Never meaning no harm Beats all you never saw Been in trouble with the law Since the day they was born Good old boys. I'm Mark Bogby. Today we're joined by the Peruvian Bull. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Excellent. This is you're a uh, valuation analyst in the financial technology sector. You write about finance, monetary economics. Uh, you're at PeruvianBull.medium.com. On Twitter at Peruvian underscore bull, Peruvian underscore bull. Uh, is there anything else? Uh, well, I gained notoriety on Reddit. Um, that's how most people know me. Um, and there, I'm, <laughs> I'm also Peruvian bull as well. Just Peruvian underscore bull. Um, same as Twitter. I've I've got to start out this way. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of discussion this week about. You should congratulations on being famous on Reddit without being a sex pervert. Yeah. That's a real accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. It's a it's a it's a rare a rare class. Uh, either neckbeard or a pervert. Those, those seems like those are the only two options. Well, I mean, for this topic in particular. So, I mean, you know, Reddit has a big reputation. Obviously, in like you know, most of the Reddit reputation comes from like uh, they're very strange sort of relationship <laughs> subreddits and stuff. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, you know, there it's, it's be, first off, it's become that thing where like, if, uh, if I'm looking for a review of something, like I was doing this the other day, I was, uh, or looking for like something real specific information. Like, uh, I was looking to see if a Glock 43 and a 48 had was a certain thing was compatible. What I'll end up doing is I'll I'll type in like Glock forty eight Glock forty three barrel Reddit. You just put Reddit, yeah. Yeah, you put Reddit in your thing because then at least you'll get an actual human talking. But now the other the other thing is that well, if you're talking about tech and finance, well, all the big stories out of that tech and finance intersection came out of Reddit, right? This is where all the mm -hmm. GME and all this stuff went down, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm mainly active on Superstonk, which is this subreddit that's basically entirely dedicated to GME. Um, and we've they you know they've changed like subs quite a few times. It first started off at Wall Street Bets, as I'm sure you guys know, and then it migrated over to I think it was our GME, um, and then that got compromised, quote unquote, and then someone moved over to a new sub called Superstonk, and that's where everyone currently is. And it's just basically focused on. Um, yeah, mostly just finding out about like shady parts of our financial system. Um, I like I I myself have like learned and grown quite a bit from from some of the posts on there, and they've had some pretty informed and intelligent people make some pretty pretty salient points. Um, but there's also a bunch of shit posting and you know stupid stupid arguing and stuff like that. It's it's just like any sub. Right. I know. There's a lot of there's this another meme. This this meme comes around like every six months where they talk about asking people where they're from so i've got to ask are you from are you from peru or peruvian at all uh no well i'm born in the u.s um my family my mom is an immigrant from peru um she moved here when she was 17 um but i was born here most of my family is born here my brother's in the navy um and all my siblings live here um and work here uh in the pacific northwest so i i go by peruvian bull because 
I wanted a unique, this was like two years ago when I first joined Reddit before I even wrote anything. Um, I wanted something unique and I wanted to go with bull because I wanted uh, to have like some sort of finance connotation. And I didn't think it would be mean anything, but now it's turned into its own name. So it's worked out. (laughs) You can tell that uh, that, uh, you're a finance guy, you know, because when I came up with my name, I literally just sat at the keyboard and just were like, you know, just like, you know, there's, there's just sort of the floating things in my head. Like, uh, it was just like, oh, these, these words were floating. You have this very systematic process. But, uh, one of the reasons I had to ask, because let me tell you, I love Peru. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Oh, I love Peru. I've, I spent about a month there when the, uh, I had a fantastic time. Um, have you been there recently or you do go there often and have you ever been there? Um, yeah, I've, I've been there quite a few times. I even lived there for a while when I was a kid. Um, the most recent time I was there was 2019. Um, Mm. I actually went to, uh, I I was getting like a, a certificate at this university in Chile and I traveled up there a few times to see family and visit people. Um, but yeah, I was, I was for that, for that, like, I think it was a seven month period. I was mostly in Chile and Argentina, but uh, I did travel up there and it, it is an amazing country. It's beautiful. Um, the food is really great. Uh, but just, you know, stay away from the street vendors generally cause they, they can get you sick if you're not used to it. Um, but Machu Picchu and you know, the, the Incan like, uh, historical sites are, are really incredible. Well, so, uh, this is a brag of, I can't hide it. This is a brag that I went there for a month and I never went to Machu Picchu. Uh, like we, and I had someone that, that, that spoke the language and there was, there was a, uh, uh, a chick there and she had spoke language. She had been there a little while and, uh, we just like rented a car, uh, rented an SUV and just drove all around the country. It was, it was, uh, amazing. Uh, the food, the food situation, it's like, uh, is amazing. Like the, the food thing it's crazy because, like, so, uh, you know, because it was, a, I don't know how it is now, but when I went, it was a cheap place if you got, uh, mm-hmm. you know, greenbacks. So mm-hmm. I, I ate at, like, the best restaurant in Lima. Also, and then, you know, the other time we were driving all up and around the mountains and stuff. The best restaurant in Lima and what stuff people eat in the, and what regular people eat in the mountains and stuff, same stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that, uh, what's that, the uh, ceviche and... Uh, well, the ceviche is, is amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's some of the best stuff. There's lomo saltado. There's um pollo, this pollo la brasa, which is just like their grilled chicken. Um, you can get cuy, which is the little gerbils. I had like, that. Yeah, those I don't are remember that at all though. <laughs> I remember it tasting. I just you know it was like oh this will be funny to eat this. I I do have one real question about this. Okay, so when I was there, they had this. It's just like chicken soup. And it just looks like chicken soup. It's this yellowish soup, but uh, it was better than any chicken soup I've ever had. Uh, do you know about this? What's the secret? What's going on with this Peruvian chicken soup? I got, I, I, I got to know. Uh, what, um, what else was in it? I don't do remember. remember. I don't remember. It, I know it looked like. <laughs> That's so vague. That's so vague. I don't. There was a soup and had chicken in it. Can you please track this down? <laughs> I don't know. I know it was around. I know people told me to get it. It looked kind of like 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 normal. I don't know if, if you know in America, like if you have Campbell's chicken soup, it's just like this 
uh, yellow soup, basically. But uh, anyways, it, it tasted like it was like a condensed uh, soup or something. I don't, know, I don't know. A lot of people told me to get it. I got it. It was really good. If you don't know, maybe it's not a, a thing like, of course, ceviche is, you know, freaking everywhere and stuff. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I do remember last time I was there, I had a soup. And the reason why it was memorable is it was, you know, had chicken chunks in it and noodles, but it had an actual foot of a chicken in it, like an entire <laughs> like chicken foot. And so that might be similar, although I was really out in the El Ca- what they call the campo, which is like the countryside. So that was like probably a little more off the path than what you did. But I think it's just probably called chicken soup there. That's probably what it is. <laughs> Yeah, Lima was awesome. Uh, you know, there's, there's neighborhood. I can't remember the neighborhood there. It's uh, okay. There's I know Miraflores. <clears throat> that's just like the like just the, the richest place there, right? I don't know. I don't. Maybe, I don't know if you know or not. Yeah, yeah. Miraflores is like the Manhattan of of Lima. Yeah, but this there was another place we went that was like the historic district. I think it was Barranco. That was a a, a very very lovely place, and it, it, it's so weird that like. Um, I know Mexico has this too. When you go to South America and you go, I don't know how to say this, but like they have like architecture that's like, looks like European or looks older than anything we have in North America. I don't know if it actually is older, but you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's all the Spanish colonial style, right? Like, mm-hmm. all, yeah, Spain colonized. I mean, per- Peru was the first colony of Spain actually in, in South America. Um, and then they expanded from there, but um they imported their architecture and if you go to certain um i know that they have this in cusco but there are certain buildings in cusco where you can look at the foundation and see the older incan like architecture ruins like as the as the you know in the basement and as the base layer and then they built they literally just bulldozed the top of it and then built the spanish colonial church on top of it um and so they just kind of copied um yeah say like 1700s 1800s spanish and Italian architecture, and it, it, it's evident all over South America. If you go to Chile, if you go to Argentina, if you go to Brazil, even and Uruguay, um, they all have similar similar deals, and they all have a all, a lot of cities down there have a plaza. So it's like you know we we have a grid style in the U.S., um, mm-hmm. but down there it's a circular style with a giant circular plaza um, with like rays of streets extending outwards. Um, that's a pretty common design. Yeah, there's. The way that the small towns, like when we went to the mountains and stuff, were set up, were uh, it just made too much sense. I was like, "Wow, this is like this is too genius." Uh, like you, you go if you go to a small town, or at least the ones I went to, and we drove all up and all around Peru, like all the whole place. And um, I, I mean, it's like it's like how you would design a city in a, a, a town, a video game. Like the center of the town, there's like a park. And there's little kids playing and there's old men sitting on benches, right? The wrap around that you have a couple shops and stuff and you have, uh, you know, all your food and stuff. And then it just extends out. And so like, uh, you know, anything you're doing in town, you're sort of crossing that central police. I don't know. It, it like, it looked, it, it was very, uh, it was, uh, and when, when, anyways, when you're there in that little central part and you just, and I guess, you know, the, the population was so low in these places where you, you can just see, that you can just see the town, the whole life of the town, everything going. This is what the kids are doing. The adults are going off this way to work. I don't know. It was, it was very, 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 uh, a very enjoyable thing to see. Yeah, for- it's much more communal. It's much more communal and familial. And like, I think it, it it's a better way of designing a town than what we have here in the U.S. for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, they, they'd even be. You know, you have the. Uh, 
Yeah, the Chinese. What do you mean, absolutely? What, do what? <laughs> what do you mean, absolutely, you traitor? <laughs> oh, right. you, you, you have to see it. I mean, you, you got to see it. There's, there, I mean, where I live, there's, there's nothing where you can, there's no place where you can sit and sort of see the, I, I don't know. I don't know. You just have to see it. But, but, you know, I'm on vacation. I'm not living there, of course. So Right. Different strokes for different folks. But, uh, you know, this is a great, a great segue because he, he mentioned that, you know, Peru was Spain's first South American colony. And Peru originally was basically a giant silver mine mm-hmm. for the Spanish Empire, correct? Yeah, yeah. No, actually, the, the largest deposit of silver I think ever found on planet Earth was found. Um, oh, I forgot the name of the mountain, but it was one of, this, one of the largest mountains in Peru. And it's actually really sad what happened. Uh, the Spaniards came and um, once they, you know, discovered the first vein, um, they started explore. They started exploration, and then they found like this, you know, massive, massive uh, store of silver. And they basically enslaved, like I think it was like it was it was like an insane amount. It was like almost to a hundred thousand uh, Inca people, and basically used them in the mines to like extract as much silver as possible. And like a lot of people died. And it, it's it's horrible, but it like this actually kind of segues into what you know mm-hmm. basically what I wrote my whole series about, which is um, empires, right? And mm-hmm. the the empire's proclivity to build a system that benefits itself at the expense of everyone else, but the eventual end end result of that is a system that becomes unstable over time. And so what happened with Spain? And Spain was you know the reason why we even have a dollar sign is because of the Spanish peso um, and this Spain actually, you know, exploited this mine to such an extent that they garnered, I think it was something like 30 or 40% of the above ground silver in the world at one point in, in the uh, 1500s. Um, and they became the de facto world reserve currency and one of, and basically the, the largest Navy on the seas. And so they were able to enforce trade and economic relations um, worldwide because of this wealth that they had uh, basically been extracting from South America. Um, and the Spanish peso became the unit of account for global trade. And so like countries like China, which, you know, were kind of closed off and, um, autarkic, uh, in nature, they, they joined the, uh, partially, I mean, it, it, it got much more, they got much more ingrained in the, uh, global economic situation later on. But a lot of countries started trading because of, um, Spain and their standardization of, of money. Um, they created the Spanish peso, which was a uh, standard unit of account for silver um, that could be used to uh, to trade and exchange goods. Um, and then, of course, they the Spain the Spanish Navy got a humiliating defeat. I think it was in 1588 um, and against the English. And uh, then the English took over, um, and over the next few centuries became the new uh, empire. And they had the world reserve currency and. Basically, everyone was using the English pound for international trade. So, you know, in the 1800s, when, you know, let's say Cuba and, or well, 1700s, so, you know, because probably by the 1800s, Cuba would have uh, um, started to use dollars as the U.S. rose. But, um, like, two countries that are, you know, let's say on opposite sides of the world, it's like Cuba and South Africa, if they're trading, you know, cotton, for example, in the 1700s, they'd be using English pounds there would be basically no other alternative because there's, you know, no world in which uh, the Cubans want a South African uh, unit of currency and there's no world in which um, the South Africans want a Cuban unit of currency. So 
um, the English pound became a standard unit of measurement uh, and trade. And so that creates like systemic worldwide demand for the English pound, which allows them to borrow and to spend more than other countries, right? Because now they have people who are willing to buy their currency um, just because they need it in trade. So, yes, yeah. the, the funny thing with this that, that sort of messes with your head is so like if you find oil, you can put that in in the gas tank of a battleship <clears throat> or of an airplane or you can run farm equipment and stuff like that. I don't know. I, I'm guessing the silver is like gold where like there you're not like uh, so, you know, if I found uh, a ton of gold, um, I would get much richer. It would be just like if I found oil or whatever however like uh you know my country my maybe i mean uh or there is no real net benefit to people you know if i find gold because there's that just means like uh if you if you if you zoom out like really that just means there's more currency around or whatever at that time like if you if you find a bunch of silver i'm guessing i don't think that there was like you know it's like oh great we have all this silver we can use it for x no it's just like well now there's more currency around like that's like the net effect which is, uh, you know, it's kind of, you know, it is kind of funny, or, or, or at least to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, no. I, well, you know, silver and gold, this was interesting because they're, they're monetary metals, but they're also industrial metals to a, certain, to a certain extent. So, like, yes, you're right that, you know, they were mainly used for monetary purposes, but silver, for example, was used um, in jewelry and is still today mm-hmm. used in industrial production processes for cars. It's used in batteries. It's used in, uh, photovoltaic chargers. So solar panels, um, anesthetic service, uh, surfaces. That's pretty, uh, yeah. silver and gold became currencies because they did have inherent value. Like they were valuable for reason. Gold is very malleable, easy to, easy to turn into things. Silver has a lot of properties that are helpful but yeah he, he basically it wasn't like the the spanish were using it to make uh lots of silverware you know for export no they were sent they were shipping it over to like the the fuggers and in, uh, in germany and, and what whatever yeah exactly i mean that's kind of and and yeah to go on um bog's point that's i think that's correct from a monetary standpoint it provided no net benefit to the world what what, what it does is create what's called the cantillion effect which is where the the discoverer, the discoverer or creator of a new uh, source of currency or new like level of supply in the currency is able to profit temporarily from the rest of the market, not understanding that there's more currency in circulation, right? So like if the Fed creates $5 trillion tomorrow and gives it to, you know, the treasury to spend, the treasury will go out and spend it, but f- prices Wait, will go- not all immediately rise. I need to go update. Oh, you said they made five trillion. No, I need to go update my no. my eBay li- my eBay listings. <laughs> <laughs> Get everything higher. Yep, update your home value. It's going to happen. Yeah, but it, yeah. if if like if that happens, right? Like the people who spend it first actually have a first mover advantage because they're spending money in the economy at lower inflation rates, newly created money, and this money will create more inflation. But they're spending it before that inflation hits, so they're effectively stealing real value from the rest of the market. And that's exactly what Spain did, right? When they when they were able to extract, um, you know, thousands of pounds of sil- thousands of pounds of silver from this mine. I actually, should probably look it up. I'm kind of curious now. Um, but when they were able to extract thousands of pounds of silver for this mine and export it around the world for silk and for, you know, German uh, muskets and for, you know, British ships, like whatever the fuck they wanted, they 
were able to basically steal from the rest of the world some of the value that they had. And they, you know, over the long run, they did devalue the the price of silver and gold because they just they found so much and flooded the market with it over time. Yeah, uh, this is I, I I like I like this kind of analysis because when you're when you're podcasting there, it's a very important concept and it's called scaring the hose. And when we start talking about predictions about things, sometimes that scares the hose. People get people get really um, intense about the subject. Like, you, oh, so you're saying this thing's going to happen? Well, maybe, but you can go back and look at historical mm-hmm. examples of the process that we're going to talk about today, and they they happen. And like, people used to do this. There used to be a thing like you guys remember the concept of the history buff. Back before, like everybody became uh, hyper obsessed with politics, twenty four seven. You could just be a guy who, like, eh, yeah, I'm a history buff. I like, uh, I like reading about history and, and things that happen. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I would actually, what I originally was probably. Um, but yes, it, yes. It's, so it's we can we can look, yeah, yeah. We can we can look at we can look at these things this way. So like Spain. Removes a huge amount of silver and and gold from the New World, brings it back to Europe, and ships it over to China. This, in the short term, is great for Spain. It creates an empire that it that for a short period of time has absolute global dominance. Spain is everywhere, Western Hemisphere, Eastern Hemisphere, everywhere. They they were. Almost an unassailable power in a new world for like I don't know 100, 150, maybe you can say almost eight, maybe close to two hundred years. Mm-hmm. But in the long term, this really wasn't isn't really a winning strategy because no empire lasts forever. Yeah, exactly. And 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 again, like the they create. I mean, Spain is um, an interesting case because right they i would say they squandered what they had far worse than almost any other empire in history i mean the british didn't have some of these advantages that spain did and they were able to hold on to their power for a lot longer and actually i would say project their dominance far better and create you know colonies that had proper administrative um proper administrative and economic development um and Spain kind of squandered it because they essentially went with the model of maximum exploitation, right? So what they did with the with the plantations is they would get, um, you know, Incan um, basically slaves and they'd basically work them to death, like in the fields trying to get as much sugarcane and tobacco and um, cotton and whatever else they could out of these people before they died. And a lot of them would die uh a young death and it required a huge security and state apparatus to enforce right because when you have uh, a, a population that's two percent spaniards and 98 percent um incans and you're trying to enforce law you basically have to have all the working men all the spanish working men of age be in the security apparatus and so they didn't develop the same sort of you know western entrepreneurial you know legal and uh, economic systems that we did in America or um, or other like English colonies, for example, like Australia, right? Because they were solely focused on on exploitation and extracting as much resources as possible. Whereas the English, they had, of course, they you know they they have no clean shirt, but they had a much more holistic approach, and they actually built up infrastructure and administrative processes to develop the colonies, um, you know, far better than what the Spanish did. And so that that's part of the reason why Spain, I think, failed 
earlier and um, sooner than it otherwise would have. Kind of a, l- a little a little off topic, but not entirely. You can kind of characterize the the uh, colonial states of the New World, like the French and the Dutch were there to tr- to trade. Mm-hmm. The Spanish were there to you know exploit and remove resources, and the English came there to settle, which is like the tra- was really the tra- you know going back thousands of years of human history. That's like the traditional pattern of every human every human culture. You want to you want to move into a new place and you're going to settle it and make it make it your own. And like we you can you can look at the results. Like look at the new world. Ob, ob, today obviously the the settlement pattern was the way, was the way to go and like it it should be. Going to a place and trying to build infrastructure and build something rather than just purely extracting or you know trading with the natives. You know you the, the people who did the the people who did that are are pretty much aside from uh, I guess the Quebecois are are gone from history and uh, the Spanish are not exactly beloved in in Latin America. So like, I think very clearly there there is still value in building something, even if in our current political <laughs> current political order, both extraction and financialization seem to be on top. Them losing their empire that makes me think of. In poker, man, because like uh, I'm thinking about they lose their empire at a game of I don't know what you call it uh, the what the age of sale combat. What is there a name for something like that? Um, I know what you're talking about. Maybe well, it's not the Gilded Age because that's the 1800s, but yeah, like oh yeah, it, that, it's just age like of exploration. age of exploration. That's a yeah, that's a good one. Right. So this. This this age of exploration naval combat and like it, it just like okay because in poker um, there was this period where uh, because poker went on TV and stuff that there was so many games there were so many players everywhere that like uh, if you were good like you net like and you never had to really play with other people who were really good if you were scoping out games and stuff like that you could play with people who were less good and. Uh, how good you are at poker is all the thing that matters is if you're sitting with people who are worse than you, like you, you, there's no, like, uh, just, you know, if you're, it doesn't matter if you're really good, if you're playing at someone who's uh, better, you're worse now. So you're going to lose money. So there was this long time and, and but that time passed. And what you had was all the, the easy money, all the bad players left. And you just had the sharks left. These people are really good. And so, what they would do and because they were they were all very good and but they still wanted they're still gonna gonna now they they now they have to fight and so what they and you know like with i don't know people seen like you could you could buy a book on texas hold'em poker and you could learn like all the uh all you know like uh what, what if i have ace king and some guy called from the second place or whatever you know, you you could learn you could learn or you know if I have Ace King over Jacks like you you can learn all the math and stuff. It's not really that complex. And now you take people who are really good. This is kind of an insufficient game for them to play. So they're going to raise the stakes, and what they're really going to do is raise the variance because they're trying to fight, and uh and they're all really good and they all and so they're going to raise. And so what they're going to do is they're going to play heads up which is going to raise the variance out, out like to the stratosphere. And then they're not going to play poker. They're going to play Omaha, which has more cards. It has some, you, you have four cards instead of two. 
which makes the calculations much more difficult. And this is how they're able to fight and, and how people who are, who are both very, very good at this, one of them is going to lose. Now you go to the age of sale. Age of sale is like the most high variance thing. Like, uh, like it's crazy. Like, you know, a ship takes years to build and like, you know, uh, your relations with that country seems to change in, in much shorter dynamics. But you know, like oh oh hey, we need we need to go we need to go uh, we need to go fuck up England. We need some ships. Well, guess what? It takes like four years to build a ship. So uh, and they cost so much money, and there's and, the, and it takes so long to build them. You're playing just like a high ass variance game. Like in other words, like I, th- I think soccer, like in basketball, uh, the better team is going to win like you know eight times out eight times out of ten. In soccer, the better team is going to win like six times out of ten. You know, in a, a like in a certain games, like the better team is going to win fifty-one times out of a hundred, and that and also there's going to be huge losses and stuff. I don't know. I just get that impression from the age of sale, like uh, these huge, super powerful countries at the the height of magnificence are like we need to fight, but like you, you know, and they're gonna, they're raising the stakes and the variance, and the stakes and the variance, where that you're playing this game that's just like. The ri- well, you're one day from losing it all. It might take years to build a to mm-hmm. build a navy, but it takes one battle to lose the whole thing, which is wh- exactly what happened to the Spanish, as could, Peruvian bull said earlier. Could you imagine being like you know the the king or 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 the admiral or whatever, and and you're sitting there waiting to find out the results of these battles because like you know if you lose three <laughs> ships instead of five, it's just like you know it'd be like the United States loses like thirty percent of its GDP. I don't know. It's, it's it's a very it's a funny thing if like they're they're increasing the stakes of the game. Yeah, the King of Spain micromanaged the proposed invasion of England. The Span, you know, the Spanish Armada. Yeah. He he was involved in that at every level. So it wasn't like so he he laid out this plan that f- failed miserably, and it that didn't destroy the empire at that point. But like that was pretty much the end of the possibility of maintaining the the, the hegemony. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. And and you know, another interesting thing to note here is. I think that the reason, the actual reason why Spain failed, was because they f- they found too much wealth too fast, too easy. All th- mm-hmm. all, all those three things combined, because other empires had to actually build build their administrative and economic and military state, you know, brick by brick. Like you look at the Babylonians, you look at the the Greeks, even. Um, the Romans are a great example of this. Like they had to start small and implement their strategy on the next town over and the next city over, and just try to take over small swaths of Italy. Whereas the the Spanish were basically like, they just got lucky that um, you know Columbus chose them because he went to several other monarchs in in Europe, and they all turned him down. They thought he was crazy, um, and then. That he went to them and they said, "Okay, you know, fuck it, why not? We'll throw throw you some money. We'll be give you some ships. You can go try this." And then they found this whole new world. They were the first movers, and then they found the silver mines at Potosi, um, and were able to just extract an insane amount of wealth. And so they didn't have these. Um, again, they didn't have the infrastructure or like the the cultural and the administrative prowess to actually manage an empire. And so, mm-hmm. like, th- I mean, this the battle of Arm- the. The Battle of 1588, the Arma- Spanish Armada defeat, is a perfect example of that. Um, they had bought most of the boats that they that they had. They didn't really know how to build boats, and a lot of their sailors. It was one of their first times ever sailing the seas. Like there was, I think I remember reading this. Like <laughs> I remember reading this. Like uh, there was like this excerpt from this like book, and they were saying that um, 
this one guy on the ship was saying that his like he had like 13 crew hands and only like i think only two of them knew how to tie sailing knots and 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 he was like telling the account of basically this is how this is what happened is like the reason why we lost is because the english were skilled sailors and they were raised on the seas and they were raised you know firing muskets and learning how to how to uh crew cannons and the spanish had no idea because again they kind of stumbled into this wealth accidentally and so they were given the keys to the kingdom at such an early stage and they got the first mover advantage for several hundred years but then once you know an emerging power like england took the stage um they won and you know the, that battle the english i think it was something like the english had like a third less ships than the spanish so the english were at a numerical disadvantage but the english completely destroyed them um and the spanish basically lost all chance of invading england and um they basically lost their uh you know hegemony over the the high seas so they were no no longer able to enforce um laws against piracy and uh enforce their trade monopolies so you know england now could step in and say hey you know you're a dutch shipping company do you want to ship furs from north america to you know um south africa will you know will contract to defend your ships and the spanish could no longer do that because so many ships had been destroyed and also their their just reputation was shattered um so it, it, yeah it wasn't the immediate end of their empire but it was the beginning of the end um and it's indicative of of just how hard it is to truly build a great empire like you you can't just be uh stumbling into wealth you have to actually have the administrative and economic and military state to back it up the i mean the funny comparison to spain's empire would have been like you know the beverly hillbillies discovering oil in the backyard <laughs> while they're shooting while they're shooting at some shooting at a, uh, a coon or whatever but like uh because I mean spain <laughs> Really, it didn't fully exist at the, at the time of the discovery of the New World. Spain really wasn't a, uh, as a unified force, wasn't a very old thing when they became an empire, which I'm sure didn't help. But the, but probably the, the, uh, the non-funny comparison would be, like, think about, like, you know, the Saudis. Uh, you, you they're, they have these rich resources. That, Imagine there's a banjo roll in the background. <laughs> Imagine, like, think about the Saudis. Like, they have this resource that people want. It it made them very rich very quickly. But, like you're, you know, like you've alluded to, they, what have they done with that with that money? They're not, they haven't turned Saudi Arabia into like an industrial juggernaut. They're not spreading. Well, <laughs> they they're spreading their culture and, and religion in certain ways, but like that mostly it's mostly happening in, in like places like Afghanistan and uh, in Yemen. They're not really mm -hmm. doing or to hookers in the French Riviera. <laughs> yeah, or Insta yeah, Instagram girls can 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 come there and get you know, get a million dollars to spend a month with whatever. Like they're 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 not using the the wealth in a way that you know whatever that we would say that's that's a good a good lasting contribution to your to your nation but it, it, anyway with, when it, we're back to the spanish like you said there were cycles of inflation and deflation for like 150 years throughout the 16th and 17th century this was kind of a the original case study for the concept of inflation because this is you know the printing the printing press was fairly newish i mean we we, ha we hadn't been we hadn't had the written word spread far and wide for very long when this happened and there were actually contemporaries uh, of the spanish empire who you know said hey maybe this is happening because you're messing around with the with the supply of money and which is i don't think like everybody in the ancient world knew what debasing the currency meant that meant that you're you, 
your, your ruler was not very good, and he was he was forced to desperate measures to to pay people with you know gold that's now objectively less valuable than it was before. But this is really the first time that people say maybe thought of money as a medium rather than like a tangible thing. Is that going too far? You can start um, nicking oh, the, the edges off of coins and stuff. <laughs> they used to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I would say, I mean, it wasn't the first. It, it was the it was the first time that um, money was starting to be accepted on a global scale, uh, and that was the late 1500s, early 1600s, into the 1700s. Because again, before this, like each nation would have its own coinage, and there wasn't much international trade. Um, during the Dark Ages and Middle Ages, um, you know, Europe was mostly closed off. There was trade between Asia, you know, Asia, um, Asia Major and Asia Minor and parts of Africa. Um, but they would just, they didn't have a standardized uh, system of coins. They just used weights. So they would, you know, trade a certain weight of gold for a certain, um, you know, garment or, or silk uh, ribbon, right? It wasn't like standardized. And, and the standardization here is really key because that, greases the wheel of trade and makes uh a commerce just so much easier and it's able you're able to standardize contracts um you're able to track and account for um you know gains and losses in your in your uh income statement like so much easier um and the spanish see their their mistake is uh there were several periods during the 1500s where you know worldwide inflation started to peak above about 10 percent. and again the, the figures here are hard to fully track because they're the data is really spotty but um, there was this one book I found that had uh, corn prices back to like 1450, and by tracking this like basket of corn prices in England and and Western Europe, they basically surmised that inflation was reached about 10, 15 percent during certain periods. So it wasn't catastrophic, but you know the the Spanish could have managed this a lot better if they had slowed down their um, export of silver. You know, because what basically <laughs> what they were doing is they were getting the silver. They were they smelt you know would maybe smelt it and purify it a, a little bit and you know stamp it into coins and then they were just going out on a shopping spree all across Europe. Um, they would you know buy, like I said, German industrial products. They'd buy British ships. They'd buy French wine and food and probably hookers as well. Like you know they were they were on a shopping spree and so when they're doing that and increasing the amount of silver in circulation you know by 10% a year 15% a year they're they're causing their own inflation and and the irony is if they had just saved this money or used it for investment right what what uh Mises called um misallocation of capital was uh common in, in that day because you know you if you're spending the money versus investing it uh and you're increasing um, inflation, you're not actually creating economic growth. What you're doing is just sustaining what's already been, you know, the, the, the capital and, and, uh, and industrial infrastructure that's already there. So that was their, that was their mistake. But it, I mean, debasement gets a lot, is a lot older than that. The, the actual term comes from, um, it, it, it's, it's technically debasing. Like what they would do is they would take base metals and insert, insert it into the coinage. So like the Roman treasury did this, um, in the late, I think mm-hmm. or mid, mid to late two hundreds and into the three hundreds, um, AD, they would, um, I think it was under Antonius. They took coins and yet they would also clip coins. Like what Bog said, they would, 
take physical coins and clip corners off of them and then take those corners, put them together in a smelting pot and then mint new coins with them. Right. And then those new coins would go in circulation and they would be sold at a premium because they're not clipped. And then after a year, those coins would be clipped <laughs> and they just keep repeating this process until all the coins look like, you know, um, like, <laughs> like, like, you, you know, those, um, you know, when you're like a kid and you're making like the little snowflakes for like art mm. class where you like cut a piece of paper up and like you unfold it and take a snowflake. You know, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is essentially like that. Like it just got so bad. And then eventually they just gave up and they started actually just melting all the coins together. They'd mix in copper and tin and then just poop them out. And I, I saw a graphic is like, you know, the denarii, which is the, the Roman, it was the Roman standard, uh, uh, basically like their version of the dollar. The denarii started out as like 95% pure silver in like, you know, 30 BC. And by the end it was something like 2% silver. And it was mostly <laughs> copper and tin and, you know, iron and lead. Like, it was just, they just filled it with all this shit they didn't need just because they were just debasing at such a rapid pace. Um, and it, that's part of, I think that's a, it's a underreported fact of history of how much the inflation of the late Roman Empire actually led to its collapse. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it is so universal. Like, if you pull a quarter out of your pocket today the, the, the edges are milled and we did that because people would shave up shave off quarters of, you know because they used to be made out of silver yeah. back when you know back when our economy was real <laughs> it's like if you find a quarter before what 1960 something yes. they're made out of pure silver they're worth more than a quarter because they're, about, they're you know they're, they're they're actual money they were about 20 bucks uh 15 10 years ago um uh, i gotta i gotta drop in a quick note just because i love this fact um Talking about the the uh, the English, uh, well, I don't know what you say, like their uh, their administrative dominance and how serious they took it. Um, when uh, you know, I don't know when if these books were ever translated to Spanish, but like uh, you know, in you know, in the West we have our we have the classics. You know, we have Homer and all this stuff. Uh, mm. In China, they have their own classics. They have the uh, I don't know, you know the the, the one the one everyone knows because it's in video games and movies is, is the Three Kingdoms. Sun Tzu. I mean, I mean, like these, you know, like Homer, like these crazy long stories oh, gotcha. of you yeah. know, the, the epics, mm -hmm. epics, right? Epics, yeah. So uh, there's is you know they had the Romance of the Three Kingdoms and all that stuff like, but uh, all these books, uh, their first appearance in English was uh, was all done by a, and I had to look this up. I was just gonna say the Navy, but. No, uh, the the so the, the people who translated these books were uh, English officers in the Chinese Maritime Customs Service, uh, which was I mean that's it just means there there's some there were uh, these were sort of like Navy bureaucrats whatever that you know it's, it, they were still reporting to uh, you know Lord Nelson or whatever but uh, they were they were the people that translated also they were the only people that that they like the only. Uh, the only people that spoke English and good enough Chinese to read, like you know, like you know, you know, to read more than just like uh, a receipt or something, were all just English Navy officers. That's the only people mm -hmm. who who could do that, and you know, that's not the cheapest thing in the world. Which, by the way, you know, they had this for many languages and stuff. It, it, it's not the cheapest thing in the world. However, it can be a lot cheaper if you have a culture where. You know, if you're a man of any station in of in England and and these these centuries, like you got to be in the navy. You know, if you're you know if your dad is someone important 
or you want, you know, and you want it, uh, you know, if you want the hottest women to look at you, if you want to be seen as a cool guy, you got to join, the, you got, you got to become a Navy officer. You have to, uh, I mean, you're, you're a loser if you don't, you know, that kind of, that kind of, uh, uh of culture, you know, I, I don't like, I don't know if every single country's empire would have had like, yeah, let's have, let's, you know, uh, they would have, you know, gone as far as like learning Chinese well enough to read like the highest levels of literature and stuff. You know, that's just not the easiest thing in the world to do. But like at that time, there's no one that there's no one that, that speaks your language that could teach you. Th these things weren't easy. And they, they were, and you're also taking like, you know, you're not, this isn't something that you're paying someone pennies to do. You're taking, uh, you know, the top 1% talent of your country and you're using it, uh, for the empire this way. I don't think, I don't think the top 1% of our country really goes to our empire. I uh, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not, um, uh, you know, this is, I'm not, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not licking your balls here, but I think I, I'm <laughs> guessing the top 1% of brains, the United States go into the finance industry. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And it's, that's honestly a travesty. Um, yes. I think, I, I think, I mean, we can, yeah, I mean, we can switch to more contemporary topics, but. Well, let me just say know, this. Uh, so going on to what, you, what you're saying there. So if you take the, mo if you take the most brilliant minds of your country and you set them in a building in Manhattan and get them to predict what the Apple earnings statement's going to be. Cause like, you know, if you could, if you could, uh, like, you know, predict at a let, like, uh, you know, 50, 55% of the time, whether something's going to happen versus not, uh, on wall street or whatever you, you would have infinite money. And so the smartest people, like, you know, you're, you're taking the most brilliant, you know, you're taking the, the, the Einsteins or whatever, and they're just sort of, and they're just like uh, predicting these things that there's no, that once again, we're back to. We've bought more of this stuff that we can't, we can't, you know, we can't move, we can't use, we can't eat this, we can't put this in a gas tank or nothing. Uh, there is real no no net benefit to society when you when you when you take your brilliant minds and you do this with them. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's a net negative, right? Because think of all the products and innovation and you know businesses that they could be creating, you know that they're not. And and I think I saw this graphic before. They said that you know the 400 year average of um, financial industry as a ratio of GDP was about 5%. And in the US and the West currently, it's at 14% of GDP. So we're about three times as many people um, working in the finance industry and contributing to GDP as there should be. Because, and partially, I blame this partially on the Federal Reserve, um, although it's not entirely the fault of the Fed. It's also the fault of regulatory apparatus. Um, and you know general risk-taking culture but mainly at the feet of the fed because they've created a culture of the perpetual um what was it, it's the the term has changed a lot it was first called um the greenspan put and then it was the bernanke put um and now it's the powell put or just the central bank put where the central bank is willing and able to step in to respond to any market you know mayhem with printed money. And so there's no incentive for any large player to deploy their capital anywhere else, right? Like imagine imagine if you had an infinite money machine and it would bail you out every time you lost at gambling at one, only on one table in a casino. <laughs> like you, why would you go anywhere else, right? Like there's no reason to go anywhere else. And so all the large players, all these institutional players, um, we know with hundreds of millions or billions um, or even trillions of dollars to, 
of capital to deploy, they have no incentive other than to keep playing this game. And it's all because the Fed has decided to create an infinite uh, an infinite put. And and the idea was, and again, as asinine as this sounds, right? Like this is their their actual logic is if they create a Fed put, they'll never have to use it. They say, you know, hey, if we create, if, if, if we go out in the market and tell everyone, hey, at, at, you know, if the market crashes 50%, we'll bail everyone out. Well, then the market will never crash 50%. That's their, that's their logic because they'll say the, the factors and the players will never allow, you know, the market to sell off that much because they'll know that it, there'll be a buyer at, at negative 50% of equities or like, let's say negative 25% of, of uh, on bonds like. You know, they know that there'll be a buyer, but that's like exactly, exactly wrong. It's the exact opposite because when you create a system that has um, such perverse incentives um, and such like rampant malinvestment and and just corruption and and evident like uh, you know central bank support, like there is no there is no risk the risk management. There is no reason to do anything like that because anything you do wrong will be bailed out, and anytime you profit you you privatize your gains so like the risk of the system builds up exponentially until it blows up again and and i i don't know if you guys read some of my some of the writings i've done but i've noted that this is part of the reason i think that's part of the reason why the bailouts from the fed have been getting exponentially larger um in 1998 there was a a hedge fund called long-term capital management um which basically they took an army of phd again this is a perfect like example of, of what you're talking about. They took an army of PhDs. They had two Nobel, Nobel, Nobel Prize winners. They had several Harvard mathematicians, MIT mathematicians. They built these quantitative bond trading models. And what they're doing is they were shorting, um, they're, they're playing convergence trades. So like, let's say like there's the Russian currency and there's Russian bond market and they would find like correlations between the currency and the bonds, right? Generally when the bond prices when bond yields move up and and interest rates in a country rise, the currency strengthens, and it just stands to reason because capital will flow into a country that pays higher interest rates, right? If you can get five percent in Japan and five percent or ten percent in Russia, and the risks are equal for the same bond with the same rating, you'll go to Russia, and so they found these these correlations, and then they they would start to make bets on them, and then oh well that bet wasn't enough, like they didn't make enough money, so they add on leverage and they add on more leverage, and then they use derivatives, and then they you know, use swaps um, and they loaded themselves up. I think at the, they were, they got 35 to one leverage um, just by going out and using uh, debt. And then they were able to get another like 20 X leverage. So something like, you know, literally an insane amount of leverage on single trades. And in in the fall of 1997, they actually blew up um, and the fed had to come in and rescue them and organize a bailout by the 12 largest banks who all had to buy a equity stake in LTCM. Um, and you know, they almost, it, they almost dragged down several large, uh, prime brokers with them. Um, and it was only through the actions of, uh, Greenspan and the fed at the last minutes to save, uh, to, to rally the industry, to save them that, you know, crisis was averted. Cause that would have been a, another 2008 crisis that very few people know about. Um, but you know, think about what events like these send, what kind of a signal this sends to the market. It's like, Hey, this hedge fund takes on, you know, like 200 X leverage and almost blows itself up in several brokers with it. Like, and they got bailed out. So 200 X isn't enough. Why don't you go for 300? You know, why don't you use off balance sheet sheet derivatives? Like why, why not do everything? Why not create new derivatives? There's, there's no, there's no ceiling to the risk taking that they can, they can take on because each 
time the Fed comes in and bails them out, um, no matter what. And they always talk tough, right? They always say, hey, you know, we're monitoring the situation. We have, a, you know, like Henry Paulson said, or Hank Paulson said in the in the summer of 2008, he said, we have a bazooka, but we're not going to use it. And then, <laughs> and then a month later, there he is buying AIG, right? It's like, dude, fuck, shut the fuck up. Yes, you're going to use it. Like, if, if why else have a bazooka? You just, you have it there for show? Like, no, you're going to use it. And you, and, and ironically, he was the CEO of Goldman Sachs. He knew that what the Fed was doing was creating systemic risk and, and uh, exacerbating it. And yet he continued through with his delusion. And again, I don't know if it's purposeful. I don't know if it's, um, if he's just deluded himself and he's just lying to himself, but whatever the case may be, um, he still thought that he would never have to use the, the, the bazooka, the put the, you know, the money printer to bail everyone out. But time and time again, that's, it, it keeps getting proved wrong. Yeah. It's like, a, you know, you, you see this, it's not even a meme. It's like, this is reality. In fact, there's been pretty big, uh, you know, political news stories in the past two years about this thing where, you know, a rich father and he indulges his, like his, his fuck up son over and over and he keeps bailing him out instead of, you know, making him deal with the consequences of his actions. And over time, yeah, there's going to be escalation because, well, you had my back then. He's probably going to do it now. Maybe I should just, you know, bet $100,000 on the Knicks. And then after that, maybe I should do that. Yeah, maybe I should go on a Coke bender. I mean, mm-hmm. Eventually, it, it only stops when the, the the screw-up kid does something so bad that dad can't bail him out anymore. Like, that's just, that's the that's the only way this ends if you don't yes. discipline mm-hmm. in the beginning. I used to mm-hmm. listen to a lot of uh, Love Line. <clears throat> um and uh, of course, Doctor Drew's big uh, dude there. I think he was on Red Scare or something. So he's mixing it up. But anyways, you know, he's—I uh, don't know if he still does it, but he used to be, you know, addiction uh, addiction medicine specialist, and um, you know, basically treating people that uh, they're addicted to drugs. And mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that he said was that so he he doesn't he he will not treat and you know he would see celebrities and stuff. He said he won't see a celebrity, or I mean, sorry, he won't see someone for heroin addiction. Unless they've, uh, unless they've, uh, hit rock bottom, which like has to like, uh, you need, like he's not going to, to help you with your addiction unless you've, uh, attempted suicide, your wife has left and took the kids you've, uh, uh, you've, you know, like, uh, you know, remember when Charlie Sheen was running around, it was clear that he had just sort of like ruined his life with, uh, these drugs and stuff. Uh, he's like basically and you know he says like you know uh that you know he's not trying to be cruel or whatever he says the people won't change unless unless they, <laughs> they have to yeah you, hit rock bottom unless yeah. you go mm-hmm. you go all the way uh which by the way this is sorry i have to do this there's a, there's a quick one so i think he sort of fits in when you brought gambling we're talking about the the wall street bets i think one of the early wall street bets cool guys but it's also it's also goes into the thing with just sort of the wasted talent there's a uh uh, I knew him from poker, although he wasn't really the greatest poker player. Uh, his, his name is Haralobus Vulgaris. Um, my one of our uh, Greek, my, one of our close Greek friends uh, will will uh, tear me up for that. But Haralobus Vulgaris, he would go by Bob most of the time. <laughs> but they would say Haralobus. But um, I don't know if you heard of him, but uh, he's he's one of the the, the classic games. So you, you know, he's a guy. He's he's uh, one of these like. You know, 
I've heard Peter Thiel was like, um, you know, when he was like in the fifth grade, he won like the state of California math exam or something. You know, he, uh, you know, like one of these people, you know, the, uh, he's one of these people, the, the, the prodigy brain man. So he's also, you know, he was, he, uh, Herabolus was like six, three handsome dating models and stuff. And with a humongous, you know, IQ, he can do anything he wants. So what does he do mm-hmm. with this big IQ? Well, uh, he he finds a way to print infinite money, and the way to print print infinite money is he look. So generally, there's no like it's very uh, you, you know you see these movies where people count cards in blackjack. Well, the only way you, if you're if you're intelligent that you would ever play blackjack is if you had some trick where you could win same thing sports betting is terrible you would never spend on sports the biggest too high you're just wasting your money unless you find some way that they've screwed up and what he found what he found out was that you could bet on uh so in general in basketball people don't really bet for how many what for who wins they bet on the over under which is how Mm -hmm. many points are scored in the game and he found and he sort of looked through everything to find any loophole he could find and he found out that you could bet on the over under for uh for the first half or the second half of the game and vegas calculated this number just by taking the number they had for the whole game and splitting it in half well if you know anything about basketball at the very end of the game people are trying to get that last point people will they'll, they'll have these intentional fouls and stuff like that. And so, like, the very last, like, 60 seconds of a basketball game will have more scoring than any of the rest of the game because of this intentional foul and free throws and you get go in the mm-hmm. bonus and stuff. And he found mm-hmm. three coaches in particular would use lots of intentional intentional fouls. And so he would just bet everything he owned on every game they would play on this thing, and Vegas didn't, didn't pick this up for a while. And, you know, he's make, he creates this empire, like, 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 you know, like he invented the iPhone or something. <laughs> really, he just found, like, a loophole in... And NBA stats. You know, I don't know how much society benefits from that. Uh, I don't know. Sorry. We can go back to this. <laughs> no, no that, that's, again, the, this is, you know, part of the salient point is that because, like, that's an example of just finding a loophole and being able to exploit it um, and, you know, not really adding a net benefit for society other than gaming, you know, gambling markets. But but this, is, this happens, like, he is a petty, petty player in this space. Like, there are Wall Street firms that do this professionally and they do this like on a scale that you would not even imagine right they they make so much money that it's like they could if they spent their entire life trying to spend it they couldn't um and they're able to hire these like some of the most brilliant people uh in the world to work for them to find out new ways to make money and and there's thousands of different ways they can do it um you know market makers like citadel are order are able to pay for order flow um, and basically get your trades from Robinhood and get them before they hit any lit market and front run you, right? So you, you're buying shares of Apple or Facebook or GameStop and they're, they're getting it several like, you know, microseconds, like, you know, millionths of a second before you and they're able to move <laughs> the price tiny bit, a fraction of a penny and steal those fractions of the penny from you and they're able to make uh, you know, hundreds of millions and billions of dollars a year doing this. Um, and there's there's actually competitions between the high-frequency trading firms of who can, like, get close. Like, literally, this is part of what they do. They try to get closest to the exchange. And, like, it it means yeah. that, like, like I'll, I'll tell you how, like, specific this gets. Like, this is fucking insane. In the server room, 
certain like certain brokers will bid more for space that is slight that is closer to the door because the cord is five feet shorter or yeah five feet shorter and that five feet shorter even at light speed will give them a few you know hundred millionths of a second and that could be the deciding factor to make the trade or not and so they will bid like the like in a server room at the New York Stock Exchange where the the prime brokers are all have their um, you know uh, their order flow and their their uh, market making server like you know going to get plugged into the actual exchange itself the the spots at the front of the room will pay the most like and it's like something like you know two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a day or something ridiculous like that like they're paying shit tons of money and. Um, you know they'll they'll sue anybody who tries to come within you know like arms distance of their monopoly um and they're even like there's there's some that are investing in um they're buying military grade um you know space communications equipment and they're using microwave towers to relay uh trade signals from chicago to new york because by using a microwave towers it's faster than um you know, typical Wi-Fi, even high-speed internet, or even Ethernet. So it's like they're 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 spending millions and millions of dollars doing this, and there's zero benefit to society. This is just gamification of stock markets, um, and you know, it all goes back to this you know over-financialization and commodification of of the economy that the Fed has taken us on um, by creating an infinite uh, money printing machine and by allowing f- funds to do this basically you know you know unfettered they've incentivized the creation of this monster and the monster is extremely hard to kill because there's very powerful interest that will stop anyone from trying to take away their their golden goose i hope they don't find out about uh, crts yet because they're already getting goddamn expensive <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you you can save about uh 40 60 milliseconds sorry good <laughs> deep fighting game lore here down to the frame right yeah go ahead <clears throat> okay so let me do like a grog brain setting the table here we're at the end of the we're at the end of the bell epoch the there's world war one's about to happen and it's going to destroy the destroy it, international finance and mm-hmm. the united states establishes the federal reserve uh in like what 1913 1914 1913 like yeah. that yeah it, the, the fed of 1913 looks nothing like the fed of the day However, the, the the entire purpose of the Federal Reserve was to stop the we had like we, we in in the nineteenth century we would have like every ten years or fifteen years there'd be a, a financial panic. You know, if you look through the history book, you'd be like, here's the the, the panic of eighteen seventy three and the panic, you know, it would just it would happen consistently over and over again. And the big brain idea here was, what if we had this institution that would stop that from happening? So uh, you know, the railroads tycoons don't lose all their money you know on a like you could almost set your watch by it now the the problem with that if you're coming at this from like the the mice's perspective is that the uh, uh like the, well, these panics these crises are corrections like they're they're mm-hmm. you know they're taking you that's just you're taking the bitter medicine at the time you don't it's not happy you don't like it people people a lot of wealth is destroyed but you kind of have to do that because that's returning to reality. Whereas the Fed kind of lets lets has let them since like, for the last hundred years just say, okay, instead of doing that, how about we just push this problem into the future over and over and over again? Was is, is that is that 
basically correct? Yeah, that's uh, that's like basically in a succinct, like easy terminology, exactly what's happening. I mean, another way to think about it is. Can I remix uh, this question? Sure. I want to. I want to make this a, a tough. <laughs> I want to make this a tougher question. Uh, it's exactly what he laid out. Okay, what if I'm somebody and I'm listening to this and I think, well, the way we used to do it, those bad crashes, that was bad enough. Isn't we don't have we don't have horrible, horrible crashes anymore. Sell sell me that the way we do it now is better. Like, uh, didn't they just in in crashes? What 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 did we give up for giving up crashes? You are you trying to say should I steel man the case of the yes. Fed? <laughs> I, I okay. literally had that written down and that exact question, Merrick. Uh, I phrased it different, but yeah, say I'm well. We just don't have crashes anymore. Why? Uh, why? Why is it? Why is this bad? I got one sentence. One sentence. One for you before he answers it. Uh, the 1873 panic basically fucked over the Republican Party so hard they had to end Reconstruction. Big W for the podcast, by the way. <laughs> but, but sorry, just let let the guest actually yeah. answer the question. Yeah, well, so, I mean, if I just steel man the Fed's case, like, you know, again, they, they were created in response to a problem, right? Like, there, I mean, there, you're right that there were dozens of panics during the 1800s. There were varying sizes. Um, the one that really spurred their creation was the Panic of 1907. Um, and that was almost, it was basically a mini 2008. Um, and it was all due to some speculators on the stock exchange that had um, taken over margin loans um, through what's called, I think it was called the Knickerbocker Trust. And there were these trust, and, and these trust companies were widespread on Wall Street at the time. And they were basically kind of like unregulated banking entities, right? Like it was um, a legal designation that um, was able to skirt by a lot of the, like, you know, at the time they had very light re regulations. So it wasn't even that re lightly regulated, but they could even skirt by those and basically issue margin loans and take on depositor money and gamble with it and do whatever they want wanted to behind closed doors and there's no auditors or regulators in, in sight and so as the as the fall of 1907 progressed there was a um two these two investors i forgot their names got extremely um over leveraged on um as a certain stock i think it was a railroad company and then the, the railroad company went bust they had to uh they got margin called couldn't make up the loans um, then the trust had to start sh uh, selling the shares to try to recoup the investment. Then that um, collapsed that trust, which also had uh, loans in it from other from other uh, banks and affiliated institutions. And J.P. Morgan came in and saved the day and basically um, was able to stop a full-on bank run from happening across the system. Because what was happening is the trust companies were all interconnected. They'd made loans to each other. And the Knickerbocker Trust was the first one to get a run on it. And as that one was getting a run on it, people were, you know, there's there, there is a there's a huge amount of like emotional and market psychology here at play like when people when people are fearful that they're going to lose all their money even if the institution is sound the proper game theory response is to withdraw all your money right like because there's only two outcomes either the the trust or the bank is solvent and it has your mon enough money to meet all redemptions or it doesn't but in either case if you're first in line and you're first to get your money out you're safe so why not just go and get your money out now and so what happened is it was a broad-based run on the entire financial system um, that was occurring for several weeks. And all these trust companies went bankrupt um, and several large banks were uh, illiquid, right? There's a common term in banking. It's uh, borrow short and lend long. And so what they were, what they had been doing is taking depositor money, right? Paying them a few percent for like uh, locking up their CD for a year. And then they were lending at 
10 years, 20 years, 30 year mortgages. And so the, 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 the loans they made couldn't be recalled easily and they didn't have enough liquidity on hand. It wasn't only a solvency issue, it was mostly a liquidity issue. They didn't have enough liquidity on hand to, to handle redemptions. And so what this means is that the investors all run to get their money. The first 10% maybe are able to get all their money out. The next 20% can get half and then the rest of the people get nothing. Um, and then that leads to everyone suing them and then um, can even lead to the, the bank or the trust going bankrupt. And this was, I would say this, you know, it, it's healthy in a way, but it also is destructive in a way, right? Because it's hard for any large investor or institution to want to do business with the bank long term if it knows that every 10 years or every 20 years, it's at risk of going bankrupt. Um, and so like a lot of loans back then were made with much shorter time horizons, even though inflation wasn't um, a huge deal in the early 1900s, it was later on in the 1920s. Um, but, you know, th there was a, a very strong like bias against holding large amounts of capital in the bank. And, it, you know, the kind of uh, was it like modus operandi was you just had to either put your money under your bed or use it somehow. Um, and this is actually what Keynes called later called the liquidity trap of, um, you know, a deflationary spiral that could begin with, you know, banks, you know, broad based run on the money markets, right? The everyone drawing their money out of banks crashes in the stock market that are self-fulfilling um, and, and these feedback loops that keep driving prices down and then people taking their money, putting it under their bed, saving it because they expect the crisis to get worse, which ironically is the very feedback loop that starts to actually make it worse because everyone thinks the same thing and everyone's withdrawing their money and all these banks are going broke um, and money velocity starts decreasing and then prices start collapsing and then you have a very severe uh, like almost like mini depressions. Like if you look through the 1800s, there were several periods where, you know, GDP contracts 10% in a year, which I mean, today is just like, no one can even fucking imagine that. It's like, that's an, that's a very deep correction, but back then it was common. And so to do large scale industrial projects, it was risky in a lot in a, in a large sense because of this fear of the banks going bankrupt, right? If you're taking loans secured by a bank, or if you're investing in a bank, you have a million dollars of capital to deploy it, which at that time was a large amount of money, and you invested it in a bank and you wanted them to make loans and give you a carry on your on your capital, you basically were gambling. And so it was a, there's a very limited amount of credit. And so it was extremely difficult. So if you're a startup entrepreneur and you're trying to get credit and you're trying to get a loan to start a business or you need to do a loan to expand your business, the the banking regulations were so tight it was like you know basically over restrictive like it, it was impossible for you to get it unless you were already rich and so what this did is it's it uh stymied the ability of people to have proper um, social mobility within the um, income spectrum right so like if you're a small entrepreneur and you run a bicycle shop and you want to expand and you know double your footprint or triple your footprint and move into a new city you basically had to have a rich uncle that would that would co-sign all your loans and guarantee everything personally with his accounts. Um, and if you didn't have that, then good luck. It, the bank wouldn't give you any money. Um, and so this lack of capital availability did have an impact on the economy and did make it harder for businesses and especially startup businesses to grow. And so that's, if I had to steel man the case, like that's probably as best as I can do. Um, but again, like, what the, what the creators of the Fed um, 
didn't really i guess anticipate it's just all the the side effects like they they saw this as just a pure good like they said okay we're creating a central bank that will bail out any any you know trust companies any depository institutions any brokerage firms and so now like these run the runs on the banks will be passed and we won't have these deflationary crises um but what they did guarantee is you know kind of like what i said earlier is increased risk-taking system-wide and 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 their continual need to bail people out again and again um but you know there are there is some benefits to it i mean it's nice to know that whatever happens your money is safe in the bank in the u.s because you know that the fed will step in and print whatever money is needed and so that does stop that psychological um feedback loop the downward spiral of of uh you know bank run fear and panic um but i it, it comes at a cost and in my opinion there's better ways to handle the problem yeah, yeah I, when you talk about a bank run, like it's, it's Christmas time, so every you know you'll you'll see you'll see it's a wonderful life at least one time, and there's the scene where you know he's he's explaining he's explaining how banks work, like yeah, your money's not here, it's in Joe's house and Mrs. Macklin's house, and like mm-hmm. that, you know for for all the for all the ills that the Fed has is created and in our economic system is is created, like there was a lot of a lot of of wealth and a lot of social mobility people moved up to the middle class who probably who, who wouldn't have if not for cheaper money right like a lot there's a lot of people who have now hundreds of thousands of dollars in home equity that simply would not have had that if, if we hadn't done it this way whether that would whether the juice was worth the squeeze you kind of have to make that decision for yourself but yeah i i, I get what you're saying there there's a lot of challengers mm-hmm. parked outside of double wides around here too um, <laughs> but you know, I, um, so, you know, thinking about this, you know, I'll, it makes me think of the way you've described it here. Of course, there's a, uh, you know, there, there's a, a, a little phrase, a maxim or, uh, for everything. This, this one, I, I think we're talking about something like, uh, the cure being worse than, worse than the disease. You know, this, mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I'm in, I'm into old, I'm into cars I've fixed up and, bunch of cars uh also guitars and guns you know and this is funny because this hits all three of those so you know what there's this thing that happens uh with with guns cars and and guitars where you can you can sort of modify these things and you know the idea is that you make them better so uh you know with a car people will they start out they get the the new air cleaner uh you know, you, you you can you can uh, you know you can put in a new nut on your guitar, and string trees. You can you can change out change out the um, the tr- the trigger on a on a gun. That's usually one of the first things. But what what you see happen? It, what's weird is you know you, you're like oh I'm upgrading this thing. I'm making it better. And then what you find out is basically after you like once you you're on the other side of this and you've made a couple modifications, and you're at the end state. A lot of times you fucked it up, really. Like you, you really <laughs> mm-hmm. just should have let it alone. And th- this is mm-hmm. the kind of, um, you know, in in cars you see this a lot. They'll be like, um, oh, "This car doesn't have good traction." You know, they'll they'll add they'll add four wheel drive. They'll add all wheel drive to it. They'll add all these systems. They're adding these systems. They're adding these systems. And then the car is a big fat pig. And like you, you know, you're 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 trying to fix all these things, but like. There's an, like the other in this, this very, very often goes poorly. People usually there's, there's never like, uh, if you do modifications to any of these three things, you're making the value always goes down. You're never really, 
If you do one or two, you, what often happens, you do one or two things, you're okay. But the, the, the philosophy that comes out, once you start looking at this stuff, once you start thinking about, well, maybe you shouldn't have fucked with it. The, 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 which, what it comes out is like, maybe the best thing to do is that, uh, basically every design of everything has flaws. Every, every guitar, every, every gun you're, you're, you're giving something to, to, to get something really like whatever the best part of it is, you should just kind of emphasize that and kind of deal with the rest. Uh, it just, just don't just, that's just how it is. That's just kind of how it is. You just kind of have to accept it. Like it just kind of goes with, with what makes it good. Uh, you know, the, the Dodge Viper is an amazing car. It's, it's hard to handle like the old Dodge Viper. It's, it's mm -hmm. hard to handle because it has no systems in it. Like it, it doesn't have all these, these, uh, traction control stuff. If you fix all that stuff, you don't have a Dodge Viper anymore. It's not really fun anymore. You fucked it up. You, like mm -hmm. there's, there's always, but the way our mind works, it's like, oh, well I've done something to fix this thing. And we know, and there's the way that the penalties come is, is, is always obscure. And especially with something like yeah. this, it's like the different yeah, power windows sound cool. But the next thing you know, you're driving around a gay egg Hyundai and like every car on the road looks exactly the same. Mm -hmm. It's a slippery slope. <laughs> and honestly, it's especially dangerous as a subject of, of a country because you know, you think about anytime a tax goes up on a, on a bit like, uh, for vote, unless like, there's some things people will vote yes to be taxed for. Usually stuff like uh, they love parks. I don't I don't know why, but uh, people will vote to pay more tax for parks. They love parks. Anything else, they'll vote no. So, mm -hmm. you know, they'll instead they'll will like we'll have like inflation and stuff. Well, I don't. I never feel that. I didn't get to vote on that. There's no like I didn't see a big number on my tax bill and stuff. Uh, it, it's like <laughs> obscured. You know, whereas like if the guy, if the thing just collapsed, if the thing just crashed, the bank did this, I know this X, Y happened, whatever. It, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I'm, I'm, I'm found. No, I, I think what you're saying is exactly like that. That's essentially the issue is that they're, they're taking what should be a direct, right? Like, um, attributable pain and they're socializing it and, um, you know, like transforming it to be nebulous and esoteric and um like you know uh distributed right like like everyone it's like i'll give Invisible. you I'll, I'll give you a million dollars but everyone in the world will lose a penny maybe you know in one to two years it's like sure i'll take that trade but if you give that trade to every single person in the world um you know and everyone starts or it'll make the math better right like i'll, I'll give you a million dollars and I'll take away, you know, a dollar from each person. So that's a seven billion from the world population, right? In two years, you think like that's a great trade for me, but that's a horrible trade for everyone else. And on net, it it does no benefit to the system. It just drains money. It it transfers purchasing power from other people to you. And that's exactly what the Fed has accomplished in in doing with this uh, endeavor. Um, and you know, I, again, I I there were, I mean, for sure, there's huge problems with the way that banks regulated pre-1913. Um, I think the main thing was just customer education and like incorrectly d classifying depository institutions. Um, what they likely should have done has been the segregated businesses like said, okay, here's a depository institution, meaning you want to store your gold and your dollars like 
go store it here. It's literally just a bank vault and we have armed security and you'll have to pay a fee. So you won't get any interest because we're not loaning it out, but you know it's safe and there's armed security and it's like, you know, stored 50 feet underground <laughs> in a bunker. But it's like, if you want to go to a bank, they're going to have a huge sign there that says, we will take your money and give it to other people. We're going to make loans. So there's a risk of you losing everything you put here. Like banks should be treated as investment vehicles, not as, you know, save savings vehicles, right? And that was the problem is that banks were able to correctly or like maybe not correctly, but like like they were able to convince the public that they were savings institutions when they actually aren't. And that's that's their biggest trick they ever pulled. It's so funny to compare like I know people that have like dug into the 2008 uh uh you know economic thing. You know, they read thousands of pages of books. I think there's mm. a couple documentary you know, uh, you know, if you're if you're in like 1928, it's and the bank crash. It's like, oh well, John Dillinger just drove in with a car, um, uh, pointed his gun at it, and he took it. So yeah. you should go, go find John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde. It's a lot. It's a lot simpler to figure out. Okay, so we 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 talked about what, why the Fed was created and. and, and like 1913, very mm -hmm. very important year because um, immediately following this, we have like the apocalyptic war, and during that war, ev every combatant universally stops. Like they stop, they remove their, they functionally re re end the gold the gold standard because you need to borrow a crap load of money in in the war to, to finance a war. You just you're not going to have sensible. You're not gonna have like central economic policy while you're in a life and death struggle. So mm -hmm. we we shifted entirely to a vibes-based economy for the period of 1914 to like 1918, 1919, and uh, this <clears throat> this caused <clears throat> pretty insane economic dislocation. Uh, it, it worked out pretty well for for our country, but for everybody else, it was pretty much a nightmare. How did what was the what was like the response of the of the world to, for economic policy following world war one well so this is interesting there's a there's a great book written about this if you want to you know slog through it called lords of finance and what what it essentially does is follow the four central bankers of the western powers and you know germany um post during and post world war one and how they dealt with the economic and financial new world order after germany's defeat um, and, you know, basically what all the nations, yeah, you're, you're correct in saying all the nations went off the gold standard um, in the early stages of the war. I think Germany was the first to suspend gold convertibility. Um, and then England and France followed a few months later. I believe they did it like, you know, Germany did it so early. It was like in August 1914. Um, and they were able to manage about 20% or so wartime inflation. Um, during the entire year and then afterwards you know weimar germany occurred and they had an extreme hyperinflation event where inflation reached the thousands and then even the tens of thousands of percent um and the the post the post world war one world order was entirely different because first of all, all these nations you know global trade okay to a certain extent global trade was all um you know, standardized and, and uh, like regulated, right? Because the British were the sole, the preeminent world power and the British pound was the world reserve currency and all currencies were fixed to gold. So they all had fixed parity rates. Um, 
And what this meant is that they all indirectly uh, were tied to each other, right? Like if it if it's four pounds per ounce of gold and it's six marks per pounds of gold, well, then you know you can calculate exactly what the exchange rate should be between pounds and marks because you have gold as the common denominator um, of the equation. But post-World War One, with all these countries off the gold standard, there was no more, you know, just orderliness and um, and like uh, standardization between, uh, like, especially foreign exchange parties, right? Like there's, it was just a, it was just the market. It was, it was, it was completely unfettered. Um, and what happened is that, so it depends on the country you look at. So let's talk about Germany first. Germany, um, you know, post-World War One, they have the Weimar, they created the Weimar constitution. They signed the Treaty of Versailles. They all got so overloaded with debt. It's, um, you know, it's something like 160% of their GDP uh, was asked for in war reparations, which is, it's just, you know, an insane figure. And even um, even Keynes, who is, again, the preeminent economist of the, uh, like, Federal Reserve, like, you know, high academia, highfalutin, you know, like, current central banker, like paradigm, even he acknowledged at the time that this was too heavy of a, ba- a weight for anyone to bear. He said that this was a clo- that this was one of the most colossal mistakes of the of the West is is tying Germany so heavily with debt that they could never pay back. I mean, uh, I think even France wanted um, pension. France wanted pension money for for life for all their soldiers, <laughs> right? And like you know, the British wanted to repair the British wanted to repair uh, all their railroads that were um, that were heavily used or got even broke even by their own engineers. Like they wanted to rebuild. They didn't want just to punish Germany. They wanted to rebuild their own country and even make it better. Basically, use Germany to finance their own capital investment. And the the weight was so heavy that Germany just you know couldn't bear it. And what happened is um, the French first. First, they they took Lorenz and uh, I, I'm butchering the names of these provinces. It's like Lorenz and Assign, which were two uh, Prussian provinces on their uh, north northwestern border that uh, bordered um, Belgium. I'll say some. Yeah, I'll say some Lorenz. Yeah, that those two. Yeah, I'm I'm butchering the names. I'm not a uh, European, but they took those two, and then they also took control of several different ports along the Rhine, um, yeah. especially along the mouth of the river that that. Uh, you know, was especially important to trade. And so what this does is this at the very, you know, at the worst possible moment, right? It's kind of like Murphy's Law, like everything that can go wrong will go wrong. Like once the, their entire infrastructure has been destroyed, especially in the in the West, um, and they've lost millions of men and they're completely disheartened and there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, young men suffering from PTSD and they're angry and disillusioned. Um, coming home from the war and you load them with an insurmountable amount of debt and then you take away their most profitable uh, manufacturing um, provinces um, and then you force them to pay you in in paper marks and so what you know how did the Reichsbank respond is they begin printing um, and they begin printing in ever increasing amounts and so this led to you know the eventual factors that that created their hyperinflation um, and over in France France was an interesting case because the French were, you know, arguably the worst discipline of, of, of all, n- not from a monetary standpoint, but from the fiscal standpoint, because they, they loaded themselves up with an 
you know, an insurmountable amount of debt as well. Um, and their Western, the Western half of France was also demolished from the war, right? Because because the Germans actually pushed pretty deep into France in the early stages before they had to lay down the trenches. Um, and so like 20 miles from Paris. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. They got really close. I think, yeah, I think their heavy guns could even hit um, the Parisian uh, outskirts. Um, and so France was, they were heavily indebted as well. And, and they, um, their solution was what's called financial repression. So they basically <laughs> told all the banks to hold interest rates low. And then they're going to basically run inflation at 20% for three or four years, right, to devalue all the debt they've taken on. And then they would go back to a gold standard. Um, and that's kind of what they did. Um, and it didn't work uh, amazingly well, but it worked well enough that, like, you know, there weren't any, th there were protests and stuff, but there weren't any, like, you know, there wasn't an overthrow of the government like there was in, in Germany, um, eventually, you know, towards the end of the hyperinflation. Um, and, and Britain was another case where in in England, um, they, so the British statesmen had an extreme, extreme, like, um, maybe you could call it like an affinity by like a, they had like a, a very strong like moral stance that we had to be on a gold standard. And Winston Churchill at the time was, I believe he was ex exchequer of the treasury or no, he's chairman of the exchequer, which is the British term for treasury. And he, he wanted to go back to uh, a gold standard, but he wasn't sure that we should, they should go back on the pre-war parity, right? Cause the, the pre-war parity was something like, you know, um, four pounds per ounce of silver or whatever it was. Right. Um, but, and all the statesmen wanted to go back at that exact rate, but he's like, we've, you know, tripled our money supply. The math doesn't add up. And the statesmen pushed it and basically convinced him eventually to pass the bill. And so they repegged their own pound back to, you know, I think it was again, four pounds to, to a silver ounce. And what this did was create extreme inflation or sorry, extreme deflation, because what happened is all these um, um, all these people came into turn in their money, They and they didn't, again, th there's more money issued than there's silver uh, in the exchequer, right? So they can't redeem everyone. And so they just told them, your money is irredeemable. Like, we'll only redeem one out of every three pounds you have. And so basically, like a third of their money supply got, or two thirds of their money supply got chopped off overnight um, with a knife. And so they had a... In the late, in the mid to late twenties, they started experiencing um, pretty severe deflation. There were massive coal mine strikes. Um, unemployment soared to thirty percent, um, and so they had a Great Depression several years before the U.S. did. Um, and actually, most people don't know this, but um, Churchill was actually pretty unpopular before World War II. World War II is actually kind of his saving grace. He he got an enemy that was so evil and despised by the British public that he became like a, you know, uh, a vaunted figure, he, he, right? He shouldn't be. He, yeah. he, if you could pick one person in human history, the most responsible for destroying the British Empire, it would be Winston Churchill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a great writer, though. Uh, I, I don't, Yeah. I, I really have no opinion on, uh, I don't uh, much about, because like. Well, we love him because he helped sell, he helped sell, sell off their empire to us. He helped us transfer power directly. Yeah, well, Americans love well, him you, for that reason. Well, we should. Yeah. Well, yeah, he was asleep, right? Wasn't his, his mother was American, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. I, I, I want to, I just want to. I want to soapbox for just a second because you, you brought up something that keeps coming up, and, and I, I just want to get this on the record when you talked about the the, uh, the peace of 1919 and 
what happened. What what, what the Western Allies tried, to, Western what the Western powers tried to do to Germany was enforce a Carthaginian peace on their country, maybe, and you know, destroy, destroy your country, turn it into a vassal state. Mm-hmm. But they tried to do this without actually conquering Germany. Like they, like yeah, Germany lost the war, but. They, you know, the French army wasn't in Berlin in 1918. There was there was a regime a regime change revolution in Germany. The Western powers got the the you know the regime change they wanted, and then they cut a peace de- they cut a horrible peace deal with the people that they wanted in charge. You can't do that. Like if if you want to dis- if you want to dismantle and destroy a country, which is functionally what they tried to do to, to Germany in. 1918. You have to like you have to do the work. You have to you're going to go all the way to, to Berlin. You're going to have to dictate ter- your terms to the Kaiser himself or whatever. They didn't do this, and the, so there's a lot of speculation about oh what was it was the was, you know was Vers- uh, there are a lot of people who thought that Versailles was uh, the Versailles peace accords were too lenient. People like Ferdinand Falk would say that, mm-hmm. uh, which is just you know absolutely retarded. They they. The uh, the British and the French did not uh, even with Americans were not going to go to Berlin. They've just there was not enough support for for the war amongst the people who would actually fight to do that. But th- th- that's a digression. My point is they tried to they tried to use financial power to destroy a country, and you can't you can't really do that. I mean, you can to some extent, but at some point the rubber meets the road, and you have reality, and just hey, okay, money's fake. We're just going to we're going to do. We'll have hyperinflation and here. You can have work. You can have a bunch of worthless marks, and and the end result is the people that you put in charge. You functionally put in charge of Germany are completely discredited, and the Weimar Republic ends up being the victim of this policy. Yeah, no. I was going to say like this. This is the interesting thing about you know geopolitical considerations. You, you want to rule like. One thing I can think of, you want to rule with a stick but not a rod, right? You want to pun- you want to be able to punish people but not so hard that they hate you forever for it. And mm-hmm. kind of the mistake they made in the Treaty of Versailles was, you know, several fold. They, they created, right, they created this massive insurmountable debt burden and then they, um, you know, was were forcing the Germans to pay in marks. And then once the Germans started defaulting in real terms, they started invading and occupying parts of Germany. Like literally, they they invited, they invaded. You know, they first took Alsace and Lorraine, and then they uh, later took um, the Rhine River Sorry. Valley. Yeah, and and the Rhine River Valley held held like sixty percent of the German industrial production. And and you know, imagine like again for pe- people, if most people, it's hard for them to imagine like what this would feel like on a visceral level. But imagine if we you know had a war with china and we lost and china gave us you know 31 trillion dollars of debt and we couldn't pay that you know the math doesn't add up the the our own deficits are just high enough that we can't like actually pay that off and then they start to they occupy the entire midwest right from texas all the way to you know let's say like louisiana and north all the way to the border like Imagine them just taking all of that and just saying, this is ours now. Like, everything you produce, all the workers in the factory, all the wages will be garnished. Like, everything you make, every car, you know, every house, every boat, right? Like, any software products, every food product, like, everything you make will just be shipped back to China. Like, imagine the amount of uh, vitriol and hatred that would have met, that would, you know, surface the United States because of that. And that's that's kind of what they did is they they – overburdened the Germans so much that they began hating, they began blaming, you know, get it, 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 it's a complex situation, right? It's, 
it's the it's the German high command's fault, the Kaiser's fault. It's the wet complex web of alliances. It's the you know the alliance of Russia with France and you know Russia with the uh, um, uh, whoever uh, the Serbians I think it was that uh, assassinated. Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like it, it, it's a complex thing, but but most people want a simple solution. And if you're a German living in 1923 um, Weimar Germany and you have hyperinflation, you can't feed your kids, and you see French soldiers strolling down the Rhine River Valley taking your factory, you're like, oh, it's the French's fault. Um, and so that animosity, you know, is what Hitler fed on. And of course, he also played the Jewish angle. Um, to a great extent, but you know, it's this this overplaying of the of the Allies' hand was, I think, key in um, in creating the conditions for World War Two. And there was uh, I forgot the name of it, but there was a British statesman that even said um, when the Treaty of Versailles was signed. I you guys will probably find this. He said, "This is no this like, this is no peace. This is a truce for twenty years, right?" And have, twenty years Ferdinand later, Falk. that was Ferdinand Falk. Okay. Um, and he was exactly right, like basically to the day, right? Like September th- 1939 is when the Germans invaded Poland. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's like it, it was a it was a misplay, a geopolitical <clears throat> and uh, strategic misplay on the Allies' part, um, and it's a travesty. I've you know I've floated this question before on Twitter, and I'm not sure it has like an exact resolution, but it's still you know it's something like where I uh, I said was. Because, of course, Hitler was democratically elected. Now, he was a democratically elected, um, you know, uh, uh, emperor or whatever. That he, made him, he made himself sole ruler. But, you know, he wasn't elected that. But he was elected, uh, whatever, their prime minister thing, whatever. My question was... Chancellor. Chancellor. My question was, mm-hmm. was this guy the only guy running for office that said, I will, I will tear up the Treaty of Versailles? And... And I think the answer is yes. I'm like, okay, well, if you don't want Darth Vader coming to power, maybe somebody nicer should have ran for office and said, hey, we won't pay this horribly crippling debt that's going to make all of our lives horrible. Uh, you know what I'm like, you know, man, you know, maybe they could add the, uh, you know, the Bernie Sanders that says we won't pay mm-hmm. the, the, the Treaty of Versailles, but they didn't. Well, they just have Hitler. You know, I, I, I don't, if I was living there, I'd be like, hmm, well, if I'm, I'm German, I got these other choices. I have this one choice that says we won't pay a treaty in Versailles. I mean, to me, that's an easy, uh, an easy answer. Yeah, I mean, to, to just, just as a note about Falk, like his, his, his criticism of Versailles was that it didn't go far enough, that Germany needed to be dismantled more because it, he was right in the sense that you, this half measure, like where you're going to do, you're going to, you're going to punish Germany horribly, but you're not, completely disarming it is not going to is not going to be a lasting peace which is correct i mean however the way he wanted to do it was just to take to take those lands permanently instead of just occupying them he wanted to just at the annex them which also wouldn't would not have worked however he, it was there was the recognition <laughs> like i it's obvious because after world war ii we 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 did not we did not repeat the mistake of of 1919 after World War II. Germany was was completely occupied and far from like using the I, I used the term Carthaginian peace earlier. Like you know from far from destroying Germany, we rebuilt it. You know we we re, we remade Germany 
partially in our own image, and we you know, we we pour a lot of money and, and effort into into make into integrating it in, into the fully into the into the West. It's like yeah, I, I think that there were a lot of a lot of people who recognized at the time that this this treaty was bad, and you know the thing about Hitler, about Hitler is he's he's coming to power at a time there's this government that. You know, it's it ha it it owes its existence to this dead letter treaty. Like, I, I'm pro maybe not by the time he first comes to power, but you know, by the mid '30s, it's obvious Versailles, the Vers treaty of Versailles, is done. But the Weimar Republic, you know, without without the without the war without Versailles, doesn't exist. Nobody re nobody really likes it. So they're stuck in this in a situation where. They're defending unpopular ideas and unpopular policies against somebody who, like, this is this is the we we're as Americans we are particularly bad about thinking about Hitler because you know Hitler is part of our our, our new refounding myth mythos like you know the existence of Hitler's the devil and his existence you know makes our empire necessary so like we can never have like a real conversation about you know about the Nazi, you know, the Nazi Reich, and we can't, we can't really do that because to, like, to pull that string would unravel a lot of stuff for us. But like, w the the Versailles set the table for for Weimar for World War Two, which was even more destructive than World War One. Uh, you know, millions and millions of people exter exterminated on an industrial level. That that all, <laughs> it, it would be too far to say. To say that all happened because they decided they were going to use financial warfare against Germany post-war. But you could say that, like this, this, these are the stakes of how bad you can you can fuck up the world with bad financial policy. You, you like you can do this. You can you can have uh, an apocalyptic outcome. Yeah, exactly. And that was what the hyperinflation was. Is it's I mean, if you read the the accounts in in some books like When Money Died. Um, or when money dies, it's it's like actually like especially towards the latter stages, it was terrifying, and and you understand yeah. why again like people like to again, we're going down this Hitler tangent a little too. That's not what I was expecting, you know, going into this yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> call, but um, people like to you know simplify it and rationalize it away as he's just evil and you know he convinced all these people to be evil with him, but like there's a real he was able to like you know how do you call it? like. Um, hypnotize people to a certain extent because because of their pain he was a skilled yeah. politician but be, it was because of the pain they were going through like i i think if you you know if you took a character as evil as hitler and you put him in a happy midwest suburb no one would listen to him right like there's yeah. no reason to but when people are this desperate and this angry and this disenfranchised and you have all these soldiers re returning from world war one and the state isn't paying uh you know for any health care costs and they they have you know, horrible wounds, and there's you know thousands and thousands of um, you know dead, millions of dead Germans. Like the anger was palpable towards not only towards you know the um, the internal elites in the in Weimar Germany, right? The the old Prussian guard, right? The the people, the the, the Kaiser, and you know his uh, you know high high command and the generals and the the old world order that had existed, right? They they had like you know the certain. Junkers. The big mustache. Yeah, the exactly. That's the word I was looking for. The Junkers. That only certain people could become officers. You had to be of a certain blood, and you had to, you know, go to this school, and you had to have this certain amount of wealth, and you know, this entire no noble class, like people had felt that they had betrayed them completely, 
um, and they had right. Um, yeah, and absolutely. so it was. It was. This was a, a complex, you know, web of factors that led to his rise. But to focus more on the hyperinflation part, you know, this, <laughs> this, this, like, I, I think that if. If it wasn't for the, I think the hyperinflation was the final nail in the coffin. I think if it wasn't for that, that it it may we may not have had a World War II, um, because the hyperinflation was so bad. There were so many people starving to death. Uh, you know, robberies became commonplace. Uh, complete lack of collapse of confidence in the in the central bank and the government and in any, you know, military apparatus. Like it, it became, they went back to a barter system. Like they were even you know, quotes of people using, um, you know, sheepskins and, uh, and like, you know, butter and, and coins as, as like old coins from like, you know, the 1870s as, as, uh, methods of exchange. Cause they had nothing else. Cause the paper currency was completely worthless. Um, yeah, I think, I think this is, uh, uh, I do think this is good because, uh, I mean, I, I think this is where we're going. So, you know, we, we have this thing we talk about a lot that, uh, uh, so, I mean, I, I like on this show, we have, we do this a lot where we will, we will talk about, um, sort of the, these sort of total ideas, things like, um, who, who's the, uh, the, the, the geographic origins guy, Merrick, uh, Jared Diamond, like Jared Diamond's like, yeah. well, I've, there's this one thing that explains everything. Uh, I've got one I like, there's uh, we talked about one with, with, where, where sort of weapons technology explains everything. And uh, I like the point of, I mean, in my opinion, the point of these is not really, uh, these are better. If, I mean, I like these when they're better. I think you learn more if they're presented as like, actually, this explains everything. This explains everything in the world. And it doesn't mean you have to take it like, okay, this does explain exactly 100% of everything in the world. However, it means you get the steel man case of, of, of how th this factor affects things. That's because, um, I've heard convincing arguments that that poetry started World War One. Um, uh, I, I think uh, you know that, that, that there's you know the, I've I've heard convincing arguments. We've heard we've had people on the show on the show to, uh, give us a convincing argument that poetry started. I've, I've heard convincing arguments. Uh, there's there's certainly a weapons one, and you know now we're talking about sort of the most highly discussed uh, 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 event in in history uh, for people modern today. World War Two. Now here's a thing that's like, okay, so you heard it was this, and 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 uh, England and the continent, or I, you know, there's any kind of explanations for Hitler. Well, here's an explanation that's for its freaking finance, and this sort of leads into, okay, here's a question that that's this. Uh, uh, here, here's my question. Okay, so there are industries. So uh, we've talked about this before. So there's uh, people. There's a claim that goes around sometimes. I don't think it has much merit where they'll say that the reason why America has liberal gun policies compared to other countries is that the gun industry is so is so wealthy, they buy off all the politicians and stuff like this. Now, I don't think this is true, but one of the things that I thought about when I was thinking about this was that how much bigger the the beauty industry was. And you know, the, the, what I'm thinking about here is, okay, so the gun industry does have, like, real... <laughs> Maybelline occupied government. <laughs> yeah, but the gun industry does have real legislative needs, right? So uh, there was a decision made in Oregon last week where, like, if you own Ruger or Smith & Wesson, uh, you're going to lose a ton of money. So, like, 
if you do have like uh, if you are able to influence politics and you are Ruger or Smith and Wesson, uh, uh, that would really help you. Now, if your L'Oreal is bigger than the entire gun industry, they're massive. They would have mm-hmm. the ability to influence politics and want to. However, you know, maybe I haven't thought about it enough. It doesn't seem like they have as much political needs as other industries. You know, perhaps they don't want a certain chemical band, you know, that they use in their lipstick or something. But generally, they don't have a ton of, uh, of legislative needs or influence. Uh, the question here is that, so we don't really think about finance sector a lot. It's just I just sort of know they're out there. I know there's Jamie Dimon and stuff. Do does the world of finance does it have political needs? Do, do are those needs pushing up against the com the common man, uh, or, and or like the height of it would be like, uh, is are all politicians in the pocket of the finance industry, etc. Uh, and so specifically, like, do they, do they have political needs and are they in conflict with the, the average citizen? Uh, yeah, I would say honestly, probably more so than any other industry at this point. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, the, the amount of lobbying that the financial industry spends, um, again, as a proportion of like compared to the proportion of GDP they are, I think is the highest of any industry uh, in the United States. It, it's extreme. Um, and, you know, they, they've, cre- like, again, a lot of these uh, institutions have created basically like um, de facto monopolies and are able to exploit their market power uh, to extract enormous sums of money um, from, um, from exchanges without having to uh, worry about uh, regulatory uh, apparatus, the regulatory apparatus, because another thing that's not very well known is that most regulatory organizations in the finance industry are what are called SROs, self-regulatory organizations. So they're quasi-governmental bodies, but they exist on fines. They, they get their revenue from fines from the industry. So they have no incentive to actually stop any bad behavior. Whenever they catch someone doing something horrible or illegal, they just want to find them enough so that their, their agency can continue to run. So it's kind of like a, you know, it's a, a pay, pay to play, uh, industry. It's like, wait, you can, you can be as evil as you want. You just pay more money and then that will keep the casino running. This, this is a bombshell for me. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know much about no very many industries, but I remember as a kid, there was, um, uh, we had, there was this big thing that we're going to regulate video games. And the video game industry created their own uh, uh, rating system for sex or violence or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they did this to keep uh, legislative uh, away from them so that they wouldn't impose a rating system. Are you saying shit like this, they exist in finance? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You, you That's mean like, crazy. like they're, they're front, yeah, they're front running. Oh, of course. They're, of course. Of course, it's. I mean, it's to the level. It, it's to a level that you wouldn't even believe. And again, this is where if you start to go down the rabbit hole of super stonk, and so, and again, like there's a lot of shit on Reddit that's absolute garbage, but there's actually some good stuff. Uh, one is this uh, series of papers called House of Cards by this user Atobit, and uh, I can send this to you after the show if you want to like dig in a little more. But he basically goes in depth uh, discussing the DTCC which is the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, which is the central clearinghouse for all stock market trades. And they handle something like, I think it's like 
97 quadrillion dollars worth of trades a year right um and so it's like it's it's an insane again this is just when you trade a stock you you know buy for 100 bucks there's a buyer and a seller that's a hundred dollar transaction then when they when that institution trades it with another institution um that adds a hundred dollars to their you know um to the other institution's balance sheet so it's just this the, the trade volume is immense and it's all managed by the central clearinghouse and the central clearinghouse is basically run and managed by the very banks that it like serves and so it has no like this is part of the reason why if you want to go down this path um this is part of the reason why they turned off the the buy button for gamestop stock in january because what had happened is several it wasn't only just several hedge funds but several prime brokers which are you know basically like brokers only for hedge funds they're large institutions you think of like um jane street goldman sachs jp morgan all these banks have their own prime brokerage firm that that trades uh, for clients that executes trades um, for again large institutions like hedge funds, family offices, uh, pension funds, etc. Um, and all these funds were so underwater on game they had, they had shorted a ton of GameStop stock. I mean, to the point where the short interest at one point was one hundred and forty six percent, right? So they shorted more shares than even exist. So they created synthetic shares that they short and they the expectation was the price would go to zero and if the price goes to zero this is another unknown fact about the hedge fund industry is that all the gains are tax-free because um in order to calculate for the irs uh, I, I actually work as a an equity options analyst basically i like value early stage companies and help to find their that value of their options so they can grant them to employees and founders and for the irs to properly analyze capital gains there has to be a buy sell and a sell uh, a buy price and a sell price right because then they can calculate the delta and upon that delta they can calculate the, the price you should pay the the amount of tax like you should pay three dollars because you made ten dollars of gains per share right um but when they naked short a share which is they sell a share that they don't have they create a synthetic share and sell it into the market and they never buy it back then there's no buy price. And so they all the gains they get are, ta- are completely tax-free. And so all these funds had shorted GameStop and some other stocks too, um, like to a level that had basically never been done before. And then when these Redditors came in and started buying um, and started buying options, also just buying shares, it started driving up the price and it started these vicious feedback loops that ripped GME all the way up to $400 a share. And then that's the Thursday morning, January 28th is when um the dtcc had basically their uh you know defcon one warning and meltdown mode and they realized that they were you know several like i think it was like several dozen billion dollars underwater already and that the price would likely go stratospheric like it was going to go into the like thousands of dollars a share and so that's why they they called they called robin hood they called apex clearing and they shut down um, they shut down trading. They froze. I mean, Robinhood is the villain, right? Because obviously they, they literally, you could not press buy. Like they, they deleted the buy button from their platform. It was grayed out. You couldn't press it. Um, but other fund, other firms did as well. Like I think it was like, there's a total of like 15 brokers that all had to shut off trading for, or at least buying for GameStop because it would have resulted in catastrophic blowups. Like there are several large banks that would have had issues. Um, and so that like that's one just one example but this is uh, this is like rampant throughout the industry right like goldman there was another case where this was in 2017 goldman sachs was caught um using their customer accounts 
to settle trades, right? So like, let's say you're a high, so, you know, Goldman, the now a retail banking apparatus called uh, Marcus, but before they only had, you know, high net worth individuals. So let's say you're worth $20 million and you buy a bunch of Apple stock and you park it somewhere, you want to get some dividends. You use Goldman, they have a high net worth uh, platform and you buy a bunch of Apple stock and you just have it sitting there, you know, collecting dividends. Well, Goldman's hedge fund arm was going out and trading and sometimes they'd get caught short on a trade and they need shares and they would literally go into your account, take your <laughs> shares and use them to settle a trade. And then a month later when the price was at a better place, they'd come back in and put them there. And again, because they have control of the front end <laughs> uh, platform, on your side, it looks like nothing's changed, right? Even though in reality, all your shares are gone for a month, no one knows because on your side, they can change the numbers uh, on the front end uh, on the front end to, to make it balance out. So. They were doing this, like they were caught doing this for hundreds of times from 2009 to 2017. And it was estimated they had made like something like, you know, $2 billion in profits doing this trade. Um, and they were fined like a couple million dollars. And it was a slap on the wrist. No one got arrested, no one to prison. And um, someone did the math and it, 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 it like equaled out to like a couple tenths of a penny per hundred dollars of revenue they generated. So it's like, it's peanuts. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think this is why some sweaty nerd like Sam Bankman-Fried thought that he could get away with what he did at FTX? Because, hey, I mean, Goldman's been doing it for for, de- for, for for however long. Oh, absolutely. I think that's probably why he was so aggressive. I mean, he was working with Gary Gensler to um, try to get the re- same regulatory apparatus uh, installed for him. Um, actually, there's a, there's a letter that was um, – I don't know if you guys saw this. It was kind of circulating on Twitter um, – it was November. It was oh no, it was October third. He had had a meeting with Gary Gensler, right? This is about a month before the whole FTX blow up, and the SEC was considering um, filing what's called a no. I think it's called a no claims relief action, and a no claims relief action means that um, the the body in question, right, the the market in the exchange in question, will cannot be put out of business. Basically, no matter what they do, they can only be fined. And so this this kind of relief would have allowed them to basically do whatever they want and operate as Goldman does, uh, and just be regulated by by Finra and just have sli- fines slapped on them for quote unquote doing bad behavior, but never actually be forced to go out of business. Um, and they were very close to getting granted that, and he wanted a monopoly on on uh, exchange on on crypto exchange trading. But, you know, I think that this is actually beneficial that he blew up, um, even though it's painful for people, because if this had gone on, he could have established the same, the same, like, evil apparatus in, in his uh, realm of the of the finance industry as, as already exists in the rest. Um, so, yeah, it's, dude, when you, once you start going down this rabbit hole, it doesn't end. But most of the banks are completely, like, complicit in this issue. Um, another thing that you guys might want to check out, there's this, Netflix documentary called Dirty Money and in it they have this one and actually it, it kind of relates there's one that talks about Mexico there's another one that talks about Peru where they talk about how HSBC which is a large um, they're originally uh, I think they're Hong Kong actually but they're a British bank um, and they actually helped Mexican drug dealers launder hundreds of millions of dollars of money um, <laughs> and I won't 
I'll, I'll spoil it for you now. Um, the entire the entire documentary is this this like you know hard nosed regulator coming after them. He's like the DA, right? He's he's a he's a uh, you know crusader. He's completely like you know these these executives. They we have you know documented legal evidence that they knew that they were laundering money. They were taking making accounts for you know the Sinaloan cartel or you know um, the. I forgot the names of the other cartels, but like they're creating, you know, all these accounts and helping them to launder money and transfer money to offshore accounts. And they knew it. And he had them by the, you know, by the balls that he had them on the ropes. And then he got in a, uh, a call from uh, the attorney general's office and basically told them like they couldn't imprison any of these executives. They can only issue fines for these crimes and that they weren't quote unquote severe enough. And you can just see the look on this guy's face. Like it's incredible. Like you see this guy who has been, living within the law enforcement um you know the law enforcement world the environment of you know trying to do what is right and realizing there are some people at at such a high level that they're basically immune to uh penalties for their actions um and it's just like it's saddening to see but it's it's just the truth of what's what actually exists right now wow yeah you really killed that question, <laughs> you know, in terms of their needs, their needs sound massive because, you know, the Ruger thing, well, they want to be able to sell revolvers in Oregon. If you're in the finance industry, you need to be uh, basically immune from legal consequences for any of your actions, I guess. Uh, you need this all the time. This is kind of a dumb question, but it's the kind of thing that I feel like, I, I don't know, I'm going to ask this. So I, I'm in Florida. Um, I love... Uh, I like fishing and, uh, mm -hmm. you go to fishing competitions and stuff. And, um, you know, sometimes there'll be like a party for that and stuff like that. Uh, I've never, well, you gotta be rich if you want to do the guy, if you want to be the guy that fishes from like Marlin and stuff. Right. So, uh, you pay out a huge amount of money. It takes like, it takes like minimum three boats. There's one boat that you're on. It's pulling the line. There's other boats that's they're pulling these outside lines and people got to bring you fuel and all this crap. And, it's just very expensive to do this. Um, and when the first time was you go there and so, and you can, you can tell who the fishermen are. So that, you know, there's like, you're, there's, there's thousands of people there and there's like 50 people there that get to be, to get to sit in the chair and you can tell by who they look like and stuff. And the first times you go, I mean, if you're like me and you're dumb, you think like, and you see the guy and you, you, uh, you think like, okay, that guy's, that guy's really rich. Um, and there's 50, it's not often if you're a plebeian like me, that you're in the presence of like 50 people that are rich. Uh, and so there's 50 people there, they're rich. And you know, in my mind, I'm like, okay, so if I see a random guy, I, I would always think like, okay, so is he like the basis for Van Halen? Is he like a, a NFL middle linebacker? Did he invent easy cheese or something like, you know, like, um, and what you find out is like every, like the vast majority of rich guys that you see, they all have the same job. They're vice president for a bank or, or, or investing thing. I don't, I mm -hmm. guess the question is like, cause you, you know, you think of well, you know, the lifestyle rich and famous. You think of rich people as basically being, um, somehow entertainment or something or, or something like that. Uh, is a large percentage of the rich people we see come from the finance industry. And they're just these, nameless people I, I don't know how to ask that well it, it, I, I would stipulate it's not the people that you see because the people who work in the banking industry 
try to keep the, a very low profile, um, even though they have an insane amount of wealth. But this is, I mean, this is again what this is the reason why I partially why I headed down this whole rabbit hole is the more I learned, the more disgusted I became um, because I'm I would consider myself a you know classical libertarian. Um, I would consider myself a constitutionalist, um, and I would consider myself someone who believes in private property and you know individual sovereignty and it's it it literally like disgusted me to see them using again the the banks which are the you know supposedly the paragons of capitalism right the 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 uh allocators of capital and the people who grease the wheels of of the economy um being able to use rent seeking behaviors in such a way to enrich themselves and hurt everyone else and then again turn around and claim that this is capitalism because this what we have in our current system is far 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 from capitalism it is you know a rent-seeking oligopoly by the large banks um and a central bank that socializes losses instantly and uh, allows the the government itself but also the banking system to treasure to deficit spend um in perpetuity um and so it it's it's a perversion of what you know uh what was originally created what what the constitution was originally created for and you know jefferson actually actually jack both yeah. jackson and jefferson opposed the creation of a central bank hamilton pushed uh, in 1791 hamilton was pushing for the creation of what they called the national bank which was basically a private central it was a it was a central bank but it was private and it was a corporation not owned um or is it going to be a corporation owned by the government and um, but not actually technically a government organization? And uh, Jefferson was extremely concerned about uh, the ramifications that this would hold uh, for the um, for the economy and for the broader you know integrity of the capitalist system. And he he was quoted, I think it was or I think it was either no, it was Jackson actually who said um, that he'd been he'd sent men to observe uh, the people working in the First National Bank, and he said. Um, you know, I have I have I've had people observing you, and I've I, I've no, I've seen that you when you win, you take the winnings and divide divide it among yourselves, and when you lose, you charge it to the bank. And he says you are a den of vipers and thieves, right? Like you're a perversion of what this country was it actually is. And Jefferson had the same thought, and Jefferson wanted to basically make it illegal for them um, to have a, a, a central bank. And he had a point that the constitution never allowed, um, the government to create corporations. Um, and that's what essentially the idea was for the first central banks. And the, the fed is, I, I, again, and going back to what we were saying earlier is like the fed, like this whole system has been perverted again and again and again. It, it, it's, it's a, a game of, you know, inches, like every few days, they they move a couple more inches, and then the next few days or the next few years they move a couple more inches, and so the the central bank, even as even if it's its original creation, which could be argued as you know well intentioned, um, the original central bank, the first national bank, by charter was not allowed to buy government bonds, so it was illegal for the bank itself to finance the treasury direct treasury borrowing directly, and so now the Fed's basically primary mandate is to finance the government directly, right? They, they run what's called open market operations where they buy bonds on the market um, and the main bond that they were buying in, in 2021 when they're running their quantitative easing program was treasury bonds. Um, it was a combination of that and mortgage-backed securities, but it was mostly, it was like 75, 80% treasury bonds. And so they're, they're 
doing exactly the opposite of what even the original central bank was created to do. Um, and again, the Fed, when it, when it was first created, it, it wasn't supposed to buy treasury bonds. It was just supposed to loan to – it was a, a le- literally called the lender of last resort um, and only supposed to lend, right, not grant bailouts, uh, not buy equity, not create uh, special invest- purpose vehicles, SPVs, to um, pool capital and buy out Bear Stearns, right? It was just supposed to lend <laughs> to banks, right, to, for liquidity. And it wasn't – it was supposed to – like the entire um, – the entire point of it was for the Fed to know when a bank is the difference between a bank being insolvent or illiquid. If the bank was just illiquid and they had the assets to match their liabilities, but they just didn't have enough liquid assets, right? There's a bunch of uh, investors coming in for redemption. They just need some cash. Okay, the Fed can give them a line of credit, you know, 5% paid off in a year. Here's $20 million. Your bank will be fine. There you go. Um, but of course, once you open Pandora's box, it's extremely hard to close it. And it's like, well, the Fed lends. Uh, you know, at 5%, well, why don't they lend at 2%? Why don't they lend at zero, right? Why don't they, why don't we start lending to the government? Why don't we start buying treasury bonds? Why don't we start buying mortgage-backed securities because of this crisis? Like it, it just, once you open this door, it, this, the logical steps become easier and easier to take because if the Fed is already doing, you know, X, X and Y, it's very easy for them to rationalize doing Z. Um, and you saw this in 2022, like, I, or 2020 as well. I, I don't know if you followed like exactly what happened in March of 2020 during the coronavirus pandemic, um, you know, um, but they basically authorized the buying for the first time ever of corporate bond ETFs. And again, this is a, n- a completely new area that they had never, ever set foot in, right? They'd only historically up till 2008, they'd only been buying treasuries. And then now 2008 hits, there's a bunch of toxic assets. They have to buy mortgage-backed securities. And now 2020 hits and there's corporate bond ETFs that are collapsing. Bond ETFs are, or ETFs are exchange-traded funds. So it's basically a, uh, a basket of different bonds that's being traded together. And they were collapsing. And so the Fed steps in and starts buying them. And, you know, the next cycle, the Fed might buy equities, and the Fed, I mean, by buying mortgages, they're basically almost incentive. They're they're you know causing the rapid increase in house prices. Like I'm sure you've seen that in almost every in 2021, it was ridiculous. Like in every something like the median house price in the United States increased by like 23 percent, and most people saw like a, ma- a massive you know paper gains in wealth just because house prices were moving so rapidly upwards so fast, and there were people on you know. TikTok talking about 30 houses that they're flipping that year and 40 houses and 50 houses. It was like 2008 on steroids, but in even a shorter time window. And all of this, again, is is financed, uh, you know, basically exclusively by the Fed and their and their operations, um, but quote, also by this risk-taking uh, behavior. A quote from Thomas Jefferson. I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. End quote. And, ja- of course, Jackson dis- did destroy uh, destroyed the first iteration of the bank which is the real reason that uh, that they hate that they hate him you you're 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 really getting to the meat of it now and i want to i want to ask you a little i want to i want to get a little spicy here uh so we have I mean, world war ii happens uh we have the bretton woods i mean we, we don't need to go into that right we, we went back on kind of a gold standard but now it's mm-hmm. 
the, the explicitly the, the dollar is going to stand is going to the dollar is going to be pegged to gold and everybody's going to use the dollar as a reserve currency. Would that be a, a fair way to describe Bretton Woods? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah. The, the long and short of it is the Fed or well, the the war the Allies had shipped all their uh, gold, their central bank gold, because they're worried about you know being invaded <laughs> by by Germany because Germany was just you know their blitzkrieg was strategy working so effectively they shipped all their gra- their gold to the to the US treasury and the New York Fed um, and by the end of the war the fed held f- over 50% of the above ground gold in the world so they had uh, a massive massive gold pile and so they were able to dictate the terms of the post war economic order um, and uh, they created the dollar as, you know, they, they named the dollars the world reserve currency and they had the dollar pegged to gold at $35 an ounce or the, yeah, pegged to gold at $35 an ounce. And um, all, all the other nations would peg their currencies indirectly to the, or directly to the dollar and that would make them indirectly pegged to gold. Um, and so that was, that was the order. Um, and it, it's persisted basically until 1971. Right, yeah, it was in the 30s, we had FDR, stealing people <laughs> private private citizens gold like a yeah. like a like a bank robber until a point where like, yeah we're half we're half the gold in the world sitting in in vaults and, and you know in the i don't know was it fort knox wherever yeah we're, we've we've got control of the, of the gold supply the rest of the industrial world has blown itself up we're we're, we're rebuilding it pretty much by hand this goes to 1971 when because of a lot of different for one thing europe has has rebuilt and United States can't sustain being like the the only industrial power left standing for very long. It's just that was never going to be permanent. Plus, we have the war in Vietnam. We have a lot of other uh, live. We have a lot of new liabilities that we're we're giving out, handing out transfers to people that was just uh, in 1971. We were giving like American citizens were receiving money from the government that would have just been unbelievable to somebody who had lived. I don't know. 20, 30 years before. They just mm-hmm. they couldn't conceive mm-hmm. of the idea of the government just yeah. cutting you. But anyway, we have all this we have this problem. Now there's more money in circulation than there's gold. So Nixon has it basically has no and and there's kind of almost like a run on the bank, right, of the United States where people are, are coming in and they're trying to exchange their dollars for gold and we're 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 about to have the national version of a bank run in 1971, right? Yeah, well, I I, I, one caveat I would say to that, it wasn't people, it was only other nation states and central banks. So post Bretton Woods, they basically suspended gold convertibility for everyone except for nation states. So yeah. you couldn't, if you're an individual post 1945, I mean post 33, right? Especially, but especially post 45 is you couldn't take, generally take your dollars in and just have it exchanged for, for gold or silver, um, especially not at the Fed. And so you would, the only way to do that would, was to be a nation state. And what happened is in the mid-60s, uh, French President Charles de Gaulle was the one who, he started, you know, running monetary aggregate estimates and basically figured out that like, hey, the U.S. has, you know, this amount of gold that they're backed at $35 an ounce and they've issued like two and a half times more paper dollars than they should have even with all the gold that even with the massive amount of gold that they have because they've been running the Vietnam War and this uh, great society program touted by Johnson right and so um, he basically started 
he basically started redeeming all of his his uh, dollars for gold. He came in and demanded uh, settlement. And after he started doing this, a, a large section of other nations started started uh, following through as well. And the you know the sprinkle became a deluge. And by the late 1970, early 1971, um, they were withdrawing like several tons a month from the treasury. Um, and you know the Nixon. Nixon and and the advisors at you know the White House were struggling because they didn't know you know on a, on a very real uh, on a very visceral sense they didn't know what to do because any they they felt that anything they did would would tie tie their hands if they completely cut off the gold window then the dollar the trust in the dollar could completely erode and um, the dollar could potentially even lose you know status as world reserve currency or so they feared um, but if they keep the, the peg or they don't move the peg, then they know that the math doesn't add up either and they're gonna have to they're gonna run completely out of gold. And then at that point the US defaults and then you know, what do they do? They can't issue any more dollars and then global trade, you know, ceases. Because remember, a, a world reserve currency is it's not only used by other central banks, it's used by, you know, uh, trading firms, it's used by uh, you know, uh, trade brokers and and shipping companies and um, exporters, import companies, like it's used by almost everyone. Um, and even back then, when the dollar played a less, um, the the paper dollar played a less important role, it was still dominant, and it became even more dominant in the '70s with the introduction of the petrodollar. And so, what happened in in uh, August of 1971 is that the uh, the White House reached a breaking point, um, and Treasury advisors came to Clinton and told him basically, like, you have no choice but to close the gold window. And so August 15th, he suspended all convertibility for gold. He shut off the flow, and I think they had lost about like 70% of the gold that they had accumulated post-World War II. So they still were able to keep on to a good chunk of it, but they'd lost a, a, large, uh, a large section of the gold that they held. And so... They suspended the convertibility for gold. The Dixie, which is the dollar currency index, immediately started going haywire. Um, and over the next decade, we had a period of severe stagflation, um, right? We had 18, 19% inflation for the for basically a whole decade. Um, and there was a huge lack of faith in the uh, in the in the West, but especially in the United States, especially as the war was winding down. Um, and Kissinger kind of foresaw this and he was worried that um the u.s was like you know nipping itself in its own bud right like it's like it's a it's at the very early stages of becoming a superpower um or it is becoming a superpower and he, he wants to become like a hyperpower right like the one country to rule the entire world but the the issue that he he ran into is that we needed the, the world reserve currency in order to do that and so he proposed um a new system which was the petrodollar system where we would back um, we would force oil exporting nations to back um, their contracts with dollars. And so this would create, this is part of what, what I go into Triffin's dilemma, which I don't know if you guys have read the paper, but um, this is the problem with the long-term um, viability of any world reserve currency is that um, when you create a world reserve currency, you create international demand for your currency. Right, and especially if it's a petrodollar, because oil, gold is just used for settlement and trade, and can just be stored in a vault. Oil is consumed, so oil is used on a daily basis by everyone, and it's not as fungible. Um, there's like 45 different grades of crude oil, um, and it's it's 
it's extremely necessary, especially for developing nations and, and manufacturing powerhouses. So by forcing the Saudis or I guess convincing the Saudis to back uh, their oil contracts with exclusively dollars, they created, you know, basically an oil, uh, a dollar backed by oil um, instead of gold. And, and it's amazing for them because this gets around the problem of having a bank run, right? Uh, a draw on their on their reserves because now it's not the gold reserves that are being drawn down; it's the oil reserves, which are going to be drawn down anyways because people need them uh, in order for you know for for their energy needs. Um, and so that created the new paradigm, and that's what some people call this Bretton Woods too, um, is the the petrodollar system. <laughs> Isn't there kind of the baseline problem that when you're like, being a reserve currency is like a, kind of a microcosm of being an empire. The, the problem, like, it's great to be a reserve currency. You can you create a, a lot of prosperity in your country, but it's also, you have to, like, you're running a permanent trade deficit forever. You have to. That's the way, that's the only way you can actually have a reserve currency, right? Yeah. There's no way around that. Yeah, it's like the empire is like, the the, the empire itself is, is the same process. You're like, yeah, you're, you're, bringing you're 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 creating wealth but on the other hand you're also dismantling the thing that you used to cr to create the empire in the first place exactly exactly that's that's i mean that's triffin's dilemma in a nutshell and that's kind of what i laid out in the in part one a new rome and that's where that's where a lot of people misunderstand my entire thesis is that it's they think that I'm saying that the U.S. is special and that we're going to have, you know, very high inflation for a long period of time and it's going to get worse just because we're the U.S. And I'm like, no, this is a symptom of every single empire that's had a reserve currency. Um, and, you know, Triffin was a – Robert Triffin was a, a U.S. economist who presented this in front of Congress in 1960. And he saw that this problem was coming. He said, you know, we are – we have to export dollars. Right, which because the world needs our dollars for, they need it for trade invoices, they need it for settlement, they need it for um, just central bank reserves. Because again, now now we're the world reserve currency, and so how international like forex works is that if you're a, a country and you have your own currency that's trading in the market and that's collapsing in value, right? Like, I, I don't know if you follow currency market moves, but like recently the pound, for example, has fallen um precipitously low in value fell to like a dollar five whereas usually like a dollar thirty dollar forty like you know five ten years ago um and the euro too broke parity uh just this year it broke parity with the dollars uh it was below a dollar um and so if your currency is falling and you're a central banker you're a finance minister what you need is you need the world reserve currency you need another currency to use to buy it up on the exchange to bid your currency's value back up and so that's been the u.s dollar and so not only is the dollar demanded for for uh settlement for you know, oil contracts not only demanded for international trade; it's also demanded by cent other central banks, which need these dollars in order to store as bullets in the chamber to guard against a future currency crisis of their country. Um, and these crises have paid crises have played out all across history. It's in Thailand in 1997, Russia in 1998. Um, it happened. I mean, across Latin America multiple times, Argentina 2001, um, and it's happening right now in Europe because of their energy crisis. Um, and they, and, and they're, they've been having to sell their dollars in order to buy their own currency back on exchange to try to prop up uh, the peg, right? They don't want to have their currency devalued too much on exchange because um, that means any imports that they have will get ex exorbitantly expensive. And so what Triffin noted was this system requires 
constant outflow, net outflows of dollars from the United States, which the inverse side of the equation is we need to run trade deficits. We need to import more than we export. And so this will long run will rot our manufacturing base and corrupt our own economy. And I think it's a large reason why, for example, um, to get into politics a little bit, you know, Donald Trump was elected. Like most people blame this on, you know, whatever, you know, social media, social movement. But I think the crux of it was the Midwest, the Rust Belt states were all stripped of their manufacturing capacity and all these people lost their jobs. And there's this this economic and social nihilism around, um, around their future. And, you know, Trump, they felt that Trump proposed a solution to that. And um, he, he touched on that. He, he, they felt like uh, he was hearing them, right? And, you know, other people, other politicians failed at that. But all of this was is result of the empire status. All of this is result of us having to f- forcibly move our manufacturing to China and Vietnam and India and all these other exporting countries. Because again, as the world's reserve currency, we literally are forced to export dollars. And if we do not export dollars to settle global trade, global trade will start to contract. Um, and uh, in, in an economy as in a global economy as interconnected as us, that's that's uh, a danger. And so. It, the deficits must grow larger the you know the trade deficits must grow larger the current account must get more and more into the negative um and on a on another note like this incentivizes the over consumerist culture we have in the united states um you know i've lived in other countries and uh traveled quite a bit in my life and it's it's honestly fascinating to see like just the stark difference in consumer culture in the us you know even between like wealthy people in Latin America. It's like, it's insane. Like here, it's like everything single use, throw away everything. Everyone gets a new car every five years, auto loans. Like it's, everything is a throwaway culture where you're just incentivized to buy, 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 take on as much debt as possible and consume as much as possible. And again, the reason for this is because economically we need to consume because we need to import the world's goods because they need dollars. So it all stems from this, this dilemma that Triffin noted in the 60s, um, and it's still still hurting us today. You know, I had questions written down, but they basically re- relate to the last two things we've talked about. So uh, we're just going to uh, zoom in on those a little bit. A number got thrown around of a quadrillion trades. When you play poker, when you can sort of determine how good you are at poker, especially if you play online and stuff, because you can, you can have like a database of like 10,000. Like you can't really know if you're good at poker unless you have like you know, 10,000, 100,000 hands. Once you have that, you can sort of look at what you do. And from the poker player's perspective, uh, trading trading stocks and bonds and, and all this stuff was like, well, you would never know how good you are because like, well, you, you know, you buy, you know, you buy a hundred shares of Coke and then you sell it three years later. If you're a normie, when you think of the stock market, you think of this thing that you were talking about before where it's like, oh, a bank, well, a bank needs to find promising businessmen who have like they have a new idea for how an engine works or something and they're going to lay an investment out and that's sort of like the traditional way we think about uh banking it sounds like what you're just like once you have a quadrillion trades yeah i don't know how much of that is like uh you know who's the guy that lives in omaha that's the big trader and stuff oh what warren, warren buffett yeah you know warren buffett's like well he, the idea is that like he's folksy guy and he finds these companies that could be doing better or stuff like this and and that's sort of like what we think about when you're in a quadrillion trades while well, you're doing this these like just these loopholes the 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 nba didn't calculate the second half score as much 
it sounds like what you're saying is that number has the number of how much of trading is this other thing other than like business investment to this like uh playing games is that number grown over time is there like a, a point where there's no more no more games like that you can play and the system has to reboot or something like that like where there's no more prof like where Goldman Sachs can't find any more profitable way to get the cord a little bit closer to the machine and stuff like that? Or uh, how long could this go on? I mean, I think it goes on again until they until they reach the end of the road, which is what we're getting close to. Um, it The thing is with, with derivatives is they're able to layer risk on top of risk on top of risk and create more and more bespoke derivatives, like basically... Uh, you know, as as long as they want to, um, you know, like uh, this is the essential problem with 2008, right? Like you have first you have banks that issue mortgages and the mortgages are assets on their balance sheet, even though they're debt, they, they own the debt. So it's an asset on the balance sheet. And then they say, OK, well, I don't want this mortgage, but I want to sell it to someone else. So I'm going to make it a security. OK, so you make it a security and you sell it to another uh, bank and then that bank says, "Well, I don't want all these mortgages. Why don't I bundle them all together and make a um, a basket of them, right? A CDO um, and sell that to a large institutional player." And then they do that and they say, "Well, you know, this basket of all these mortgage-backed securities are is great, but why don't I take out a credit default? Why don't I make create a credit default swap, which is a bet on um, on the actual uh, on the like." Uh, what's it called the credit rating of of the underlying mortgage-backed securities right on the cdo and so y- you can create a di- like you just creating more bets on top of the previous bet you can do this basically at infinite infinitum like imagine a part imagine a casino and there's like 10 tables and the first table is playing a game and the next table says instead of playing a, a game of poker they say well we're not going to play a game but we're going to bet on who's going to win the first poker game and then the next table says well we're not going to play a game but we're going to bet on who wins the bet of table number two, and then table number four. <laughs> like you see, you see how this. And, and again, if you if you read uh, part two, which is called the Ouroboros, which is about volatility and derivatives and uh, complex feedback loops. Like this is exactly what's played out in Wall Street time and time again. Is they 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 find more and more um, exotic and uh, extravagant ways to create derivatives that layer on complexity and debt. Um, and risk and again they've done this with crypto like i would say most crypto tokens are actually securities and they were able to create you know there are crypto options there are crypto swaps there are crypto futures there's crypto loans um i'm sure that there's exotic products at goldman that you could have bought especially at the height in 2021 of um you know like almost like credit default swaps on different crypto exchanges like they 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 can create as long as there's a product to sell they will create it and they'll sell it because again they they know that if this whole game stop if the casino stops running and everyone goes bust you know big mama fed will come in and bail everyone out and give everyone a fresh set of dollars to start over with so there's no incentive to stop this whole this madness um and the quadrillion dollars, by the way, it referred to the dollar amount of trades that goes through the DDCC uh, every year. Um, and again, a lot of that is due to the high-frequency trading firms because the high-frequency trading firms trade, you know, thousands of times a second uh, with just a, for just a single ticker or hundreds of thousands of times a second. And so they're able to just rack up just insane amounts of of money just by front-running people and doing what's called order spoofing and order book layering. Um, 
moving the price where they want it to be, for example, to uh, not have to, to worry about option expiries. Like that's another common thing that they can do. I don't know if you guys trade options. Uh, I've traded options before, but options have a strike price at which you can exercise them. And uh, this one analysis by this uh, research institution found that um, when you introduce high frequency trading firms, the likelihood that the that the closing price ends up one cent above the strike price increases by like 400%. So basically, that means that like you have a, you have an op- you're selling options. You don't want them to actually ex- you know let's say the excess price is ten dollars. You don't want to give up your shares at ten dollars, but if they go below ten dollars, you'll have to give up your shares. So you make sure the price ends up at ten dollars and one cent at the close of market trading, and and that happens again and again and again. And they're able to move the price by a couple cents or even a couple dollars uh, when they really need to. Um, and yeah, it's okay, let there's me- almost no end to this game. Merrick, who's that that genius guy from like the fifties and stuff that was like innovating in aerospace, and he was known to be a strange man. I think that Howard Hughes, right? And so, like you know, you have like uh, I think there's different points in the United States history where, like, I, I guess you go to like the fifties or something. You have like geniuses like Howard Hughes, and uh, he's trying to get rich, and so it's like, well, I'll find these new 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 technologies that that um i can sell and stuff like that or you know i'm uh and and i'm sure he'd need capital for that or you have henry ford and and and, you know well i'll make this car that sells like this or we'll make the apple computer cheaper than this and then as as time goes on it's like well uh there's there's small stories of this like um there was an airplane company that uh so airplanes to to be able to uh function properly uh outside of the, the price of gas going up and down, they will buy their gas in advance, right? So they'll buy like, um, mm-hmm. we will need, in six months, we'll need this much, much gas at this price. And so they'll have to buy it in the future. And uh, there was one company where they like they were making more money trading gas than they were flying planes. So they were like, well, we'll just get out of the plane thing and we'll just, uh, we'll just gamble on gas. Uh, GM is still selling cars, but uh, at this point, they found more success outside of the car business i've heard this before uh in just sort of uh uh, playing finance than building cars is like it it feels like is is this is this kind of thing where it's more profitable to uh sort of gamble loopholes these kinds of games and stuff like that is this like an automatic degeneration of of uh of a of a country of a uh, of an empire or is this just a failure of like uh it doesn't have to be this way if we um we we could put a stop to this kind of thing and etc do you know what i'm saying yeah no i know what you're saying um i think i mean it's hard to say but i i would be on the camp that i think it's inevitable i i i think that like again what what happens with every crisis is there's always good intentions right like that's kind of like the government motto is, you know, we, we're from the government, we're here to save you, and we're creating this temporary facility just for a temporary reason, and it just needs to be used for this one time, and it'll never be used again. Um, you know, you saw that in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis, um, and there's always a good rationalization, even by, you know, the most ardent opponents um, for 
creating a certain you know new government program a new paradigm a new um rule that would you know benefit the people who just got injured and then what happens is that rule gets expanded and expanded and the agency gains more power and they get more money and then the the industry itself you know gets larger and larger and it becomes harder and harder to change until it it's you get to the point where um you know where rome did where the the momentum the momentum of the um you know of the debauchery and of the opulence and just the you know the hedonism gets so much that you cannot escape it you know even good intentioned people um can't can't fight back because again all the people in power they have wealth and status and privileges that they never earned that they never really worked for and you know that's the key is like imagine imagine you were a bodybuilder and you but you were born with that you know that body you just had all these muscles and you just popped out of the womb like that like if you were left your own devices and you didn't have any discipline you'd lose that within a year you'd become a fat slob and that's the same thing that's happening um you know in markets is these these institutions have become more and more lazy and the regulatory bodies have become more and more you know asleep at the wheel and so there's no and there's less and less incentive again for them to to actually regulate because they they're making money on just fines and so it even if you have like ardent free market, you know, regulatory people, eventually those people will get pushed out. And again, maybe even they, they might have good arguments. They might say like this is what happened um, if you follow uh, Glass-Steagall. Glass-Steagall was a, a banking act in, uh, uh, an act in 1933 that separated commercial and investment banks. So if you're an investment bank, you underwrite securities, right? You make loans. You create. Uh, you have a prime broker that can trade on an exchange on your behalf. Um, you're basically an investment entity, and then the commercial bank is only supposed to deal with commercial bank deposits and mortgages and you know real world assets. It's not supposed to. It's not supposed to have uh, or or speculate on financial assets. And in, in the late '90s, there was a huge push by the banking industry and the hedge fund cartel to uh, eliminate Glass Steagall. And again, the reasoning was that they told Clinton was. You know, w- there's a ton of innovation that can occur. Like, for example, the credit default swaps. Like, that was, th- those were created in 1994 uh, by a J.P. Morgan trader. Like, there's this all this innovation that is waiting to be unlocked, and you're stopping this by not al- by not deregulating this space, right? You're stopping this by not allowing us to innovate and create new financial products. And, um, you know, if if he was someone like you know, an FDR, or if he was someone like a Teddy Roosevelt, he would have probably not bought that argument. Um, but since he was a Clinton, and he had, you know, kind of grown up in the post-war, um, and post-petrodollar, especially economic prosperity that the U.S. enjoyed, he he doesn't see a risk, you know? It's like, how could he see that? He doesn't he doesn't understand that that's, that's a problem, and so he thinks it's okay, and he signs off on it. Um, and I've even had the same question, honestly, like some people have told me uh, this is ridiculous, but they've said, you know, you should be chairman of the Fed. And I'm and what my retort is like, you do not understand what the problem is. The problem is not the person in power. The problem is the actual power structure itself. Right. Like even if I have all the right uh, aspirations and I'm like a completely moral person and I'm incorruptible, which I'm not. Um, but if let's say I'm incorruptible, my perfect, you know, moral um, paragon, I could I couldn't change the system because everyone else in the system has these malincentives uh, to act. And so in order to change the system, you need a majority 
um, or a supermajority of the system to have the right incentives and to have the right beliefs and to move in the right direction. And that won't happen until we wipe the, you know, you have a complete wiping of the old system and a rebuilding of the new one, um, which is, again, yes. part of the reason why we had bank runs in the past, why it was good is because every 10 years, everyone's reminded that, hey, these aren't savings vehicles. These are investment vehicles and investments can go to zero. Yes, you can't reform these people. They're constitutionally incapable of it. They're not JP Morgan. They're not the same kind of creature anymore. And I want to put a little... I want to put a little bit of the special sauce of the podcast on this because this is my this is my version of your Caesar quote, Bogby. This is a uh, one of Cyrus's underlings beseeching him to to move away from the 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 rugged terrains of, of Persia and live in some of the rich lands they just conquered. Let us depart from the rug this this little and rugged land which we possess and occupy the ones that are better. There are many such lands on our borders and many further distant. If we take one of these, we shall have all the more reasons for renown. It's only reasonable that a ruling people should act in this way. For when we when will we have a better opportunity than now, when we're lords of so many men and of all of Asia? Cyrus heard them and found nothing to marvel at in their design. Go ahead and do this, he said, but if you do so, be prepared no longer to be rulers, but rather subjects. Soft lands breed soft men, wondrous fruits of the earth, and valiant warriors grow not from the same soil. And a lot of people meme this and like, you know, weak men create hard times. And like, but that's missing the point. The point isn't like that this is a, I mean, it is a deficiency, but like you can't, you can't escape this. There's no way around it. Mm -hmm. This is we're we're in the cycle of empire. It's unfortunate, and like like our friend here just said, the only way around out of it is through it. You're going to have to, you know, you got to get nailed to the tree of woe and and, and take your licks. And it's the it's the and the, the I guess the, the 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 big problem with the way we have it set up now is that when you just keep on pushing that further and further in in, in the distance. It's gonna the, the the time you're spending nailed to the tree is gonna get worse and worse as, to, as it pro progressively goes on. It's gonna go from oh we I just had the panic of 1907 to uh, <laughs> 2008 the, 2008. Yeah, and you know whatever comes after that. Uh, okay, I know we're going over time. I've got uh, but mm -hmm. I, I do have uh, sorry I've got one more question. You can take as much time as you would or not. Uh, that's and uh, we'll do this in a second. But yeah, Peruvian bull.medium.com sign up mm -hmm. obviously you can tell this is an intelligent guy peruvian underscore bull on twitter okay so now this is a, this is the uh the hard question do whatever you want with it three-part question but it's not it's not that bad but so so it's like this okay so would the united states losing reserve currency be bad for the average citizen the average person listening to this do you think the united states will will lose the dollar as the world reserve currency and if so when would you estimate that would happen sorry okay um <laughs> this is a yeah this is an interesting question because again this is a question of timeline um will the you know will i'll start with the first one will this be bad um it again there this is the problem with economics there's no such thing as simple answers and there are no solutions there are only trade-offs right so in some senses, I think it will be catastrophic. Um, global demand for dollars will plummet if we lose world reserve currency status. Um, but the the biggest problem is that there has to be something to replace it. And currently, we're operating under the TINA doctrine. TINA means there is no alternative. So 
the world as a whole, like BRICS, which is uh, Brazil, Russia, uh, India, China, South Africa, they want to move off uh, of the dollar standard. And they've been making s- some pretty significant moves to get out of it. But the problem is that they they can't agree on their own alternative because any alternative they have is going to have a similar centralized solution where there's one issuer and each of them wants to be it, but not, none of them is structurally big enough or uh, economically mightily enough to actually do it. Um, for the average person, again, it's it's a mix of things, right? So in the immediate aftermath, I would predict that it'd be uh, inflation. Well, it, it's going to be a whipsaw. So first, there's something, I, again, this is going off way into the weeds, but there's something called the dollar milkshake theory that was originally pre- pre- uh, posited by Brent Johnson, who is um, a former um, like uh, VP at uh, Credit Suisse. Uh, he's run a gold fund, and now he just does macro research and basically presents it all to retail investment audiences for free. And he basically laid out the case of uh, why the dollar uh, will remain king at least until the very end. And th- you know the the issue is the difference in demand. The the dollar, like we've covered earlier, has global, you know, structural constant demand. And so it's unlike any other currency. And if you look at currency markets, what's happened this year is now the dollar, the Dixie's back down to 104. But at one point this year, the, the dollar was at 114, which was the highest in 20 years. And, you know, the pound and the euro were both down. And so it's actually worked in the short term to abate inflation in the U.S. Some estimates say that inflation here should be 12 percent um, or 13 percent if it wasn't for, uh, you know, this global demand for dollars. Um, so in the short run... Um, immediately after a you know a, a, a loss of the world reserve currency status, uh, because of the um, just the, the the momentum of the system, there would be a whipsaw effect where the Dixie would probably r- be ripped upward as there'd be a liquidity uh, surge. Everyone like there's still dollar debt, right? There's still all these third world countries, all these corporations, all have debt in dollars, and so even with the reserve, with us losing reserve currency status, they still need this, and the the vestiges of the old system still remain. So there'll probably be a rip upwards in the Dixie for a little while, which will again uh, abate inflation for six months. I don't know, nine months, a short period of time, and then once all that dollar debt, um, you know, is all the claims have been fulfilled and everything's you know liquid, then that's when the deluge begins, and uh, people, if they have again. Provided that we have an alternative, people start moving to the alternative and the dollar starts fa- starts falling on current exchange, which means that now everything we import gets massively more expensive. And remember, our economy is 70% consumption. And most of that consumption um, comes from uh, manufactured goods that are cheaply produced in third world countries. And so if all those goods become more expensive, that's uh, a huge economic headwind for us. Um, and it would severely add to inflationary pressures so that's kind of a complex answer to your first question it'd be it'd be beneficial for a short period of time and then likely you know uh negative as inflation goes even higher than it is now um the second question was uh will we reserve will we lose dollar currency status is, it, is that correct yes um okay and i think i yeah I, i'd say yes it's inevitable again there's no there's no historical precedent of any nation in the uh or any especially any empire holding this forever and triven's dilemma ensures that these imbalances continue to get more and more severe you can look up um in part uh on the medium uh, article there's this one i there's this one post i have called um economic warfare and the end of Bretton woods 
and I have the um, I have a chart um, of central bank holdings of treasuries, and they've been declining uh, on net since 2015. And again, this is com- and Russia and China doing this even earlier. They've been uh, de-dollarizing since about like 2009, 2010, um, and basically the the global monetary system understands that this is not sustainable long term because again the dollar they have to ex- we have to export dollars all these countries recycle their dollar surpluses by buying us debt which in, in you know further pushes us underwater and especially pushes our treasury underwater and then that just guarantees that any crisis we have in the future is even more severe and that we have to print more money to get out and this feedback loop continues until we have such bad inflation um, that they're forced to use a new currency as the world reserve currency. Um, and that would, again, on a timeline scale, it's very hard to say because this this all depends on what what actions the Fed and the Treasury take. Because there are, you know, my series is, is it sounds kind of apocalyptic, the dollar end game, but there are ways out of this, although I don't think that they'll be taken. And one of the most salient points that have been made about one of the ways out of this crisis um, made by Luke Groman um, is uh, a revaluing of gold. And so that would be, we would basically kind of try to go back to Bretton Woods where we would have to revalue gold to like $7,000 an ounce or $10,000 an ounce, like some crazy number, which is currently trading at like, you know, 1600. It, they'd have to revalue it like multiples of what it is now, um, you know, grant the treasury, uh, grant back the treasury, the ability to mint money and take it away from the fed. And then, basically default on all the excess debt that we have and then try to restart the system that way. But, but again, that would be extremely painful and difficult and likely cause, uh, just economic mayhem, uh, in the short term, but it could potentially preserve the system in the long run. But even if we did that, like we're still work, we're, we're, we're saving the system, but we're getting, we're also in a way kicking the can down the road because yeah, we revalue gold, but this the sil- the same system still exists. There's still the same uh, you know feedback loops and incentive mechanisms. And pol- U.S. politicians are going to be incentivized by the nature of this system to in a hundred years start barring again heavily and put us in the same position that Nixon was. And then we'll have a run on the gold you know on our gold reserves. And then the- they'll have to r- depeg. And you know the exact like it- it's not actually solving the problem. It's just kicking the can further down the road. Um, and so. For several reasons, I don't think that that's. I personally don't think that that's the route they're going to take. But you know, losing the world's reserve currency status is not a. It's not a quick path, right? Like, post World War One, after, um, you know, after the Entente, um, and the Axis powers made their resolution at the Treaty of Versailles, and you know, England was still the world's reserve currency, and they they repegged at a poor, at at too high of a number, and so they lost. They had a massive deflationary event and, and had basically the Great Depression about five years before we did. Um, England suffered for about they, – they hobbled on for about 20 years, right, until they completely lost world sort of currency status at Bretton Woods. So it's like they – even though they were hobbled and um, badly damaged as an economy and as a superpower, they still were able to hold on for quite a while. Um and I think that this will this will happen faster. You know, I'd say within the next ten years. Um, but you know, it it's all dependent on on the f- actions the Fed takes and actions that other central banks take. Because you know, there are this is what uh, I've termed 
uh, again, man, we're there's just so much to touch on, man. This is a this is a long question, a long answer, but um, this is what I've termed the sword of Damocles, um, which is a a parable written by a Greek philosopher Cicero um, about this, you know, uh, this uh, court jester and his. And he's uh, hanging out in this the court of Damocles, who's this king who has all these enemies, and he he marvels at how amazing his life is. He has all this you know wine and gold and women and uh, food, and he's just living life to the fullest. And uh, Damocles asks the court jester to sit down in front of him and lay on this bed and eat grapes and enjoy himself. And then he notices that there's a sword hanging by a horsehair above his head and suspended. And he can't move, and and so and Democles basically tells him like this is the this is the path of a king, you're you're given, you know, innumerable power, but you're also given innumerable risk. Like this this is a this is not an easy mantle to take. You know this this crown, heavy lies the head that wears the crown. This is a this is a heavy heavy burden, and this is the same problem that every world reserve currency will face eventually, which is why. None of them exist forever, is because these imbalances build up so much. So they, the system funds the constant, you know, recycling of debt, the destruction of the manufacturing base of the of the host country, the buildup of debt of the host country, and then also the ownership of that debt in in the um, vassal countries. So like China, Japan, you know, UK, U, uh, and the EU hold trillions of dollars worth of treasuries. Uh, China, or Japan alone is, I think, 1.1.4 1. trillion. China holds 1.2, and you know, China is not exactly our economic uh, friend. And so, if if China wanted, they could push a nuclear button and they could dump all the treasuries on the market at once. And 1.2 tre- trillion dollars of treasuries in the market at once is, in my opinion, a, like a financial Armageddon event. That's like 2008. That's or it's it's actually several levels worse than 2008 because um, the cascade of risk that that would cause throughout the financial system would be, you know, horrific. Um, and the Fed, the only answer that we would have is the Fed would have to buy it and print it all. They'd have to print all the money needed to buy up all those treasuries and to stop them from doing that. Um, and again, China hasn't pulled that trigger yet because they understand that there's you know it's like it's like shooting someone in the head it's like there's no way back from this and that once they do that it'll be full on economic warfare between us and them um and they can't do that until there's a new world reserve currency and preferably they would they want it to be theirs you know they've been making moves with what they call uh cips which is their like chinese interbank like protocol standard for they're trying to get they're basically trying to export their yuan uh, exchange business to other countries so they're trying to force like african countries to use the yuan um in contracts so that they can try to create their own de facto currency but the issue is that um china faces is one of you know the same the same issue that we face is that they need to be a net exporter in order to do this and, they, and they're not currently a net, a net exporter um you know and the other problem they face is what's called the currency well it's called the policy trilemma or the currency trilemma um and it's you can look it up there's this graph it has a triangle and it has three sides and um basically you can only choose two of the three if you you cannot choose all three because it's basically impossible you'll uh your system will break um it's similar to the blockchain trilemma which i'm not sure if you guys are familiar with, but the three sides are the three corners of the free flow of capital, fixed exchange rates, and independent monetary policy. So you can't you can't have all three. 
You can't fix exchange rates and have the free flow and have an independent monetary policy. You have to pick two. And China currently doesn't have a free flow of cap. They don't have a fixed. So they have a floating exchange rate. So they have the second one. And they do have their own independent monetary policy because they have their own central bank that can set its own rates. Um, and they have their own treasury, which can spend its own rate um, that they want. Um, but they don't have a free flow of capital. And you need the free flow of capital um, in order to basically uh, run a world reserve currency. And so they're unable, as long as they have, um, as long as they, they're running this game of being an, an exporter, they can't do this. Um, and even if they were an, a net importer, they, the other thing you need is political clout and uh, especially naval power to enforce, you know, um, force your power across global trade. And the U.S. has had that for, for decades, but China does not have a Navy that's large enough or powerful enough to do that yet. Um, and so we're kind of stuck on, on the global scale. We're stuck at this like very interesting, um, very interesting dilemma where a lot of countries want to get off the dollar standard. They want to use something else. They know that there are structural problems. They know that this system cannot last forever and that there are these imbalances that will um, create ever more debt and ever more deficits in the, in the U.S. domestically. But there is no alternative. There's no like no one knows what comes next. No one knows um, which currency will replace it. Um, and the IMF has what's called the SDR, which is a special drawing right, which is a a, a currency that's a basket of other currencies that su could supposedly be used as a new world reserve currency. Um, but it has several issues, um, one of which is who issues it and who enforces issuance of that system, right? And... Um, Currently, there's no straight answer for that because the IMF is not a country. It's a, you know, quasi-governmental bank, <laughs> right? And so it's like there's there's no way, it, you know, if if uh, if it's we, a church, not a country. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I imagine it, it, uh, it, from Evangelion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Well, I mean, hey, when we're talking about timelines, look, the Phoenicians had 400 years. The Spanish had 300 years. The Romans had about 600. The British had 400, uh, three 400. So buckle up. We could be we could be here a while. That's true, but uh, I'll take the under on that. I mean, I'm I, again. If you read, if you, if you read, I, I know this sounds pessimistic, man. But if you read the series and you read personally what I think is is happening um, and the structural deficit problem that the U.S. Treasury and Fed are in. Um, I think it's going to happen sooner than that. I think I, I would say we'll lose world, world reserve currency status within ten years. Um, and it, again, maybe Whoa. close. Cl yeah, yeah, because just of how. The, I mean, okay, this goes back into my final post. So my conclusion of my dollar end game, which is called Enter the Dragon, um, where I discuss the frightening fact that the U.S. true interest expense is already above tax receipts. In Q3 2021, the true interest expense, which is interest payments plus entitlement pay goes, is 111% of U.S. tax receipts. So that means our, our revenues from the, from the IRS cannot pay the interest on the debt. So now the debt, it's, it's like a event, that's an event horizon that cannot be passed. So once we pass that, there's no way out. If they raise taxes, that will hurt economic growth, which will eventually lower taxes, which is called the Laffer Curve. So there's a limit to how much they can raise taxes. And even with ta even with tax receipts at all-time highs in 2021 because of the stock market pumping and asset prices pumping and you know the everything bubble um, going upwards for everyone, we were running a $3.46 trillion deficit, 
right? And and we're at 111% of true interest expense in regards to uh, revenues. And so we're past the point where we can actually pay all this debt. We're past it. It's, it's over. And so now the question is, what do we do moving forward? And that's kind of the thesis of the dollar endgame series is there's two ways out and that those two ways are deflation or inflation. The Fed can either print it or we can just choose to default. And both scenarios are not good for the U.S. and they're not good for the world, but that's what we're faced with. They'll have to read that on on peruvianbull.medium.com. That's one apocalypse you described, the other, you know, the China one. We've had, at some point, the, you know, the Chinese are starting, you know, that they're, the laborers want more money as they get middle classy and they want a car and stuff. And the United States will is already making moves. They want to pull the factories out and do that in Vietnam or something. That'll cause unrest. The leaders there will be under trouble. They'll be temp. There'll be a point where they'll be tempted to to pull that play. There's a lot of a lot of things out there. I don't know. Do you have any? Do you have anything you want to you want to plug? You you've done very you've done very well here. This this has been fascinating. <laughs> and I, I'm gonna I want to read more on your medium. Yeah yeah. So I have everything on medium. I also have everything up on Reddit. Um, you can just look up. Uh, the dollar end game by proving bull. It should be all on Reddit. Um, but Reddit is a poor place to look at it because there's just a bunch of other garbage on there. So I would, I would, yeah, recommend the medium account. You can follow me on Twitter at proving bull. Um, and there's also several other people that I think are really great to follow, like, uh, Luke Roman and Lynn Alden. But, um, yeah, this is, it's been basically a year and a half to write this whole series. And I, I wrote, Again, I didn't even think I would get through the whole thing. Like I, I wrote part one because I got in so many like goddamn arguments with people about economics on Reddit. I was like, okay, I need to just explain some stuff that I've learned and, and you know, stuff I learned in college, but especially just learned in, in my work and uh, just doing research. And it just has transformed into this whole series. Um, and so I'm I'm grateful for, you know, all the interest and uh, all the support um, and all the challenging questions because this has been able to push me um, but yeah, you can find me on medium. You can find me on Twitter and on Reddit. Um, I'm mainly on Twitter, so you can follow me there. Excellent. Hit him up. Yeah. All right. Yeah, thank you guys. This was a, this was a great, great discussion. Um, hope, hopefully it made you think, you know, um, hopefully you guys can check out the articles. I w- I'd love to come back a second time and discuss more if if that's possible Hell yeah. I, i've got a lot of questions i i, I wrote down so much i uh, i still yeah i still do too so yeah next time we gotta hit them up will, even spicier content we will have to do yes it again. sir right, thank you all right sounds good good night